Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Oh, summertime. Don't you love it? But uh, winter has its charms, but summer is a sultry, slutty mistress of my heart. So um, I just wish I lived in a land with bigger bugs and more corrupt politics. Just one of the things that seems to happen with more vitamin D. So I hope you're doing well. FreeDomainRadio.com slash donate to help out the show. We hugely appreciate and need and need. Don't let other people do the right thing if you're consuming the show. You know what you need to do. Uh, come and uh, help us out and support us. That having been said, let me hopefully support you with a few words of philosophical wisdom as we dive into caller numero uno. All right. Up first today is Ruben. Ruben wrote in and his question said, After listening to the Truth About Gene Wars, R versus K selection theory presentation, I was left with some questions. At first glance, I'd say that I am and began life as a case strategist, but many outside pressures have worked to encourage the development of R-selected traits. There are areas in my life that I find R-selected tendencies running rampant, and others that K-traits seem to be coming more naturally. It is as if not only are there varying degrees between the two extremes from one area of life to the next, but many variables that can influence shifts, positive or negative, moment to moment, and throughout my life. Am I looking at this wrong? If our strategies developed in stressful environments as a child, can self-knowledge give me the tools to replace them with K strategies? That's yes. <laughs> and, and to say any more would just be pure R. No, no. <laughs> How you doing, Ruben? Well, thank you, Stefan. One of the listeners whose name makes me hungry. Oh. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and also uh, enjoy soulful gospel music, but that's another story. <laughs> so, uh, how you doing tonight? Doing well. Um, yeah, quite a bit going on, but it's a big honor and uh, very excited to be able to join the conversation. Um, found your show at a uh, time in life where just, uh, yeah, it took a while to catch on or, you know, to really get into the conversation in, in an in-depth way. But I first found you when... Uh, looking up stuff on um, self-abuse and you have this wonderful talk um, with music in the background and stuff and it just really hit me at a time where uh, uh, yeah I've just latched onto your show and um, it's it's great to join the conversation well thanks Mike if you can dig us up a title uh, let's uh, help share that uh, there are some gems back there lost in the dust of uh, philosophical prehistory have you uh, done and, a video uh, on this? The answer is yes, most likely we <laughs> <Yeah. you> have. <laughs> right. We will say yes, um, and it's possible that it's not true, but for the most part. Possible, but unlikely. <laughs> so um, the R versus K. Let me just give you a very brief, you know, for those, uh, and I'll, I'll diminish these in, in depth and uh, detail as we go forward because people are just going to have to get the hang of this stuff because it is very interesting and exciting. R versus K reproductive strategies come out of biology, you can find them in biological textbooks. We've, of course, I've done Gene Wars Part 1. Part 2, I was literally sweating my brain out today uh, putting together the presentation for Part 3. Uh, it is right at the edge of what my brain can, <laughs> can do, which is very exciting for me. I, I always like wobbling on the edge of falling. <laughs> and um, uh, our reproductive strategy is a reproductive strategy that organisms evolved to use when there are uh, there's no shortage of food or other resources but there is predation uh, so you think of you know rabbits and uh, and insects and other things in general where you know they don't really run out of food but they get eaten 
And if you are in a situation where food is plentiful and there are predators, your best reproductive strategy is to have sex as early and as often as possible and produce as many offspring as possible and don't give really much of a rat's ass about how those offspring do. That is your best strategy because if and have early sexual maturity or maturation because if you get eaten before you get to reproduce, then uh, doesn't do you much of uh, any good. And uh, alongside of that, because you're prey, well, you want to f- run fast, but there's not really much else that you can do. I mean, the, the wolf comes in around the rabbits, the rabbits all just scatter. And so there's not a lot of evolutionary pressures on more sophisticated and complex thing other than run, <laughs> run. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, you basically are a highly promiscuous, non-involved parent whose job is to turn grass into more rabbits as quickly as uh, possible and outbreed the predation that occurs. Uh, the wolves, on the other hand, are case-selected, which means that uh, the quality of the wolf really matters. Like a smarter wolf that's able to cooperate better with the other wolves is going to evolve a better strategy for catching its prey. So there are uh, jackals in Africa uh, that when they hunt the deer or the springbok uh, or whatever it is that they hunt, a zebra, I think, as well, you know, some of them lie in wait and the others drive them towards the trap and they all have to cooperate because individually and singly, they can't really catch the deer. Uh, the deer are just running and jumping machines and also fierce kickers, right? The deer uh, can be quite uh, aggressive in the defense. And so the jackals that cooperate, that work well together, that develop uh, uh, in-group preferences and so on and train their children on how to best hunt the deer, well, they're the ones who succeed. And so case-selected organisms, which tend to be at the top of the food chain, tend to be the most intelligent, the most complex, the most sophisticated, have a very strong in-group preference. Uh, they, they really highly invest in their children. Think of the amount of time that lions spend teaching their children how to hunt and all that. Um, whereas, of course, for the rabbits, you don't need to teach the rabbit to run or to eat gr- hunting grass relatively, relatively easy, particularly in uh, Denver, I think it is. And uh, so the R versus K reproductive strategies um, is a way of explaining, and I think with very good explanatory and even predictive power, the differences in left-right ideologies. There are biological bases, there are genetic and epigenetic uh, differences between these uh, two mindsets and gene sets, and they are at war. They are uh, enemies. And I'm currently, you know, these are the bullets that I take for philosophy, I'm watching Twilight, New Moon, to figure out the difference between vampires which are, um, are selected, of course. They don't run out of people to eat uh, versus werewolves who hunt vampires, and uh, it's very rare for them to find one. Uh, and, uh, of course, wolves are, uh, are very case-selected in nature and uh, very fiercely loyal uh, and so on, and, and monogamous. Monogamy is a big key thing. Um, the they are selected tend to be single parents, uh, both in, on the left and uh, uh, in nature. So that's just a very, very brief tour. I invite you to look at Gene Wars Part 1, 2, and hopefully very soon, Part 3. I may do a Part 4. Uh, I, I'm sort of going to see how well uh, people like the uh, explanatory power of Part 3, which goes into how these different gene sets and uh, tendencies, both biological, genetic, epigenetic, and philosophical, show up in the different ways that people on the left and the right view something like like a like abortion, right? So uh, abortion, just very briefly, uh, for ours, 
children are expendable. For Ks, children are an incredibly precious resource. Uh, if, if you go and take a baby rabbit away from a mother rabbit, she doesn't really care. If you try and take a baby bear away from a mother grizzly bear, well, you're not going to have a very fun day. Uh, same thing with wolves and so on. So they're fiercely loyal and protective of their offspring, and the offspring are real treasures, whereas for rabbits, it's like, oh, God, another baby. It's like that scene in Monty Python's uh, Meaning of Life where the Catholic woman just has a baby while she's doing the dishes. Oh, could you get that one, dear? Thump, it goes onto the floor. And uh, if you look at abortion, well, uh, on the left, of course, they're uh, pro-choice and... Uh, just a bunch of cells, not really that important. You can kill it. It's not really a human being yet. Whereas on the right, it's like, but that's a baby. <laughs> that's a baby. How could you? Right? And that's just R versus K uh, manifesting itself in um, emotional preferences and, and a perspective on the value of children. A case uh, with national debt, they're like, well, this is going to be harmful to our children, so we better rein in the spending because it's going to be bad for our kids. Whereas the R's are like, Anyone who doesn't let you have grass when you're a rabbit is just an asshole, like because there's just an infinite amount of grass. Anyone who's withholding it from you must just be a really mean jerk. And in the same way, anyone who suggests restraining government spending just hates the poor. And like, Anyway, so I'm sort of getting into that latter part of the analysis right now, and that's just sort of a very brief overview of it before we, uh, before we dive in. So uh, sorry, Ruben. Uh, thank you for your patience, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I was really glad, actually, right at the top with that resounding yes <laughs> to the question, um, because I guess uh, as I started uh, learning and, and listening to your uh, first two videos, it, uh, yeah, it left me wondering, is this, is this a key to, to uh, really try and, and continue my path to self-knowledge? Is this a key, like... When I spot these R traits, is that like biological? Do I just accept it and learn ways to strategize around it? Or is this replaceable? Is this more like schema and, and memes that can be uh, replaced with better schema? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I was just struck by your use of the word or the term self-knowledge, which, of course, I use a lot as well. And it's really a challenge to use the term self-knowledge, and I'm sort of recognizing this more as I dive deeper into this question of epigenetics, because yourself is not a thing right. that you get to know. It's uh, a thing that you change by knowing it. Right. That, that journey of self-knowledge never ends, because your, your, your self changes. Your, yourself is not a thing. You know, like you, you photograph a rock from all sides, you photograph all the outside of the rock, but you haven't changed the rock by taking a picture of it. If you pick up a book and, and memorize it, you know, uh, who is it, uh, Benedict Cumbersnatch or something like that? He's playing um, uh, Hamlet at the moment. And you go and memorize Hamlet, you haven't changed the play. I mean, you just memorized it. In fact, if you've changed the play, you've not done, you've not done a good job. I remember when I was playing Gloucester in King Lear when I was younger, the guy who gouges out someone else's eyes. It was just a deliciously meaty, evil role. And... Uh, <laughs> I made a mistake in coming in and I, I spoke the wrong line. And fortunately, the other actors were good enough that they uh, used a bit of iambic improvisation to remind me of the right line. It's the only time I ever flubbed a line on stage. But um, uh, so you, you don't want to be changing up Shakespeare. Uh, you, you can ad lib a bunch of stuff, but not Shakespeare. And so when you learn something that's fixed, you learn it, but you haven't changed the fixed thing. But when you learn something about yourself, it creates choices and opportunities that didn't exist before. Like if you 
if you have a tendency towards dating crazy women because you had a crazy mom and then you learn that pattern, it gives you the choice to not date crazy women and therefore you've learned that you have a tendency to, to date crazy women and you've changed that which you have studied by studying it. You, you've created choice where before was, uh, was only habit. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd certainly say that R versus K, uh, I've certainly, I was, I was bred very, very significantly R-based. And uh, I have, uh, uh, but I think I had tendencies towards K deep down. Yeah. But I, I think I was a K specimen dropped in a, like a pure undiluted R vat of K destroying acidic feminine liquid. <laughs> and um, I think that um, when I so came I, across, sorry, go ahead. No, I like that. It reminds me of Sam Harris' uh, description um, of the self as a process, which is highly changeable. Yeah. And um, so, so I, in other words, the more I can identify our traits and learn about the the roots in my history as to why they exist uh, you're saying that's going to provide the the knowledge that i need to make those changes is that right yeah yeah i mean i think that um i mean for me when i came across ayn rand at the age of 15 or 16 that was my first exposure to pure distilled k-juice and for, for a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm not obviously equating the two, but there's, there's enough similarities that it's worthwhile. For a lot of people, that's seeing Donald Trump handle the media. <laughs> like, they, it's just like, w- w- what? <laughs> why, 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 why is he not afraid of verbal abuse? Well, because Ks aren't afraid of verbal abuse. Rs are terrified of it. But uh, Ks are, are not ter- terrified. They're, you know, sticks and stones, right? And... Um, so for a lot of people, I think this is why, particularly in, in it's, I mean, it's hard to understand the appeal of Donald Trump without understanding how many kids are growing up without fathers, right? This is the first time they've seen uh, an assertive male in the face of this R-selected bitching, whining, and moaning. And uh, the idea that the, the old, magical, politically correct spells are not working to take the spine out of an alpha male uh, is, uh, <laughs> I don't know, let's just yell it louder. They call him Teflon Don, I think they're calling him now, like the things are just sliding off him and so on. Right. Well, uh, That's a, people are just startling. They're startled to see a K-selected human being in action. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's a real insight for me because uh, you connected verbal abuse. And um, uh, I guess to get a little personal, um, wasn't planning on it, but I, I recently um, was let go from a, a job that I really, really uh, believed I would retire at. And um, it had to do, I think, with our traits in me and um, in my role, there was uh, a lot of customer-facing interactions, which from time to time would, uh, would be verbally abusive and... Uh, you mean the customers were, yeah. Correct. And so, um, you know, and I always prided myself. I, I had uh, not been in such a directly customer-facing role in many years, but uh, more on the management side. And so I thought uh, this was going to be, you know, a real easy uh, role to knock out of the park and, and, you know, climb the ladder to success and, and escalate. But, uh, uh, yeah, I ran into a, a wall there. And it was pretty devastating. Um, what, what, what was the wall? You know, getting defensive, I think. Um, you mean you getting defensive? Yeah. Yeah. With the customers? 
Correct. Even and and even though like I've done training, I've literally written manuals on <laughs> techniques and the logic behind you know not taking things personal. Um, there were, uh, yeah, just these triggers um, throughout interactions, and and it wasn't all personality types. It was you know far few and far in between, but um, still. Uh, a big problem because anytime I'd have an interaction like that, I would, um, just really, uh, take ownership and, 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 uh, beat myself up a bit over it and, and really want to learn from it and, and, um, and whatnot. But yeah, throughout that whole process, I kept, uh, you know, thinking, boy, I'm doing so well in all these other areas. I just got to cinch up this one, Thing, but it got to a point where uh, you know it was it was the wrong customer at the wrong time, and um, well, there is. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there is this weird, and it is truly weird when you think about it. But there's this weird belief at the moment, and it's been going on for decades now. It's very, and this is going back to Donald Trump, right? So he's using the term anchor babies, right? And he was asked by some whiny, weasel-faced reporter. You know, did you know that the term anchor babies is offensive? And Donald Trump was like, uh, hey, I'm going to use the term anchor babies because that's what everybody uses and that's the right phrase. Excuse me, I'm going to use the words that I'm using. Hmm. And the idea, I mean, it, it is purely are selected to imagine that because someone is upset, something bad has happened. Hmm. And so the problem for me and maybe this is what you faced in your job, Ruben, but the problem for me is that in the past, like, and certainly in the world that I grew up in, like I grew up in a very rough and tumble world in, in boarding school and so on, and there was a lot of physical competition. And to trip someone was a confession of viciousness and impotence. You know, if you're in a running race with someone, you tie their shoes together or you trip them or something, that was like the lowest of the low. Like it was incomprehensible. And if you got angry and upset with what someone was saying, that was a confession that, that you lost. In other words, if you started attacking someone personally during a debate, or if you cried, or if you got upset, that was considered shameful. Sure. You know, like if, if, you, <laughs> if you shoot at the goal and you miss, and then you burst into tears and sob, that would be considered like, what the hell's wrong with you, right? I mean, that's not what you do. But that's case-selected stuff where you compete and you compete honestly and openly and you follow the rules and you don't make it personal. But uh, in our society right now, and there's a lot of reasons for this which we don't have to get into, but there's this belief that if someone's upset, something bad has happened. I mean, unless that person is a white male. In which. <laughs> Something good has happened, right? We've upset the patriarchy, yay. Um, I don't know if it comes out of uh, uh, w women or whatever, but uh, it is. Um, and so with the, the verbal abuse stuff, um, we, we just live in this culture where what you said has really upset someone. Therefore, that's bad. And that is such a foreign concept. Like very fundamentally, that is a foreign concept to me. But it's something that if you believe it, it completely displaces dispassionate, rational, and objective debates. 
I mean, you can just go to the Bernie Sanders video that I did, the, the, the truth about Bernie Sanders, and just look at, you know, the, the colloquial, oh, butthurt. <laughs> They're just butthurt. They're upset. And uh, you can just see this, just this, this, this is upsetting to me. This bothers me. This is boring. This is irritating. This is, and it's like, I, I just have to keep saying, like a metronome, not an argument, not an argument, not an argument, not an argument. And it's tragic the degree to which people, and I assume that these are young people, probably more young people than most, they have no idea that being upset is a confession of intellectual impotency. It doesn't mean you can't ever get angry or be upset or whatever. That's totally fine. But simply saying, I'm upset, it's like saying, well, we had a football game, soccer game, (laughs) football, to the domestics, soccer to the colonists, and we, our, my team lost 10 to 0. But I'm going to cry until everyone says that my team won. I mean, tr- try that. I mean, <laughs> the people would just look at you like, what are you talking about? Or like you, you come up with some proof of Fermat's last theorem in mathematics and it completely doesn't hold together because it involves unicorn droppings and dragon eyes and stuff. And then you say, well, I'm going to be really upset until everyone tells me that I've solved it. I mean, it's incomprehensible, the, the idea that mere emotions move reality. But because it's become so widespread and so foundational to our thinking... It's become, you know, this general witch hunt. And it's the R-selected. R-selected amygdalas freak out uh, when, when stressed and, west- and when anxious. And, and they view it as an attack upon themselves. And therefore, they, they react in, in the, the viciousness of their verbal attacks is because they literally feel like they're being attacked. <laughs> I just right. feel like you're attacking me. And, and people don't have the, the you know, capacity to, to go back and say, oh, the fact that you're upset, I'm, like, I'm, it's a shame that you're upset, but I, you know, this is the way it is. And I don't know if, like in your organization, whether that was supported or not, or whether you were just supposed to count out every lunatic with a grudge. I get the picture that there's this, there's these, uh, I, I guess like the matrix metaphor is good. I, I got that from you, but you know, the, there's these, these plugs still, um, in, you know, where, where the, it it allows the, these things to fester. It allows whatever it is that that's that's got me to the point where there's a sensitive spot. You know, I feel like in a job setting, I should absolutely have unshakable composure, especially something that I've been doing for so long. And um, yeah, it just feels like I, I'm I, I'm hunting down i guess these uh areas where where i'm you know blinded to or what have you and and uh it's allowing um these r traits to fester hey man i'm so sorry i i gotta interrupt you because also abstract i find myself having a tough time paying attention to what you're saying okay do you want to talk any specifics about your job i mean uh, or or anything else but it's just it's very abstract sure uh, in terms of your experience and if you again if you don't want to talk about anything in particular but I, I do find it hard to to sort of stay focused on such abstractions. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to get um, get uh, to the point where where uh, I wouldn't 
be moved emotionally and inappropriately, right? If I'm if I'm going to be upset, like you were saying, there's got to be reasons, and so it's like life keeps coming. And as I'm trying to, you know, uh, hang on, hang on. K, yes. K is not K is not the absence of emotion. I mean, what's wrong with being upset? I mean, if you've ever again, you ever see a, sure. you stand between a okay. grizzly mom and her cubs, she's going to get pretty fucking upset, right? Sure, sure. So I guess a direct. Um, Example uh, would be the the call that I was let go for, where um, uh, you know it wasn't that I was upset to the point where I'm using language that isn't business business appropriate, but the customer was felt felt like I was being very condescending, and she happened to know folks in the organization, um, some executive level folks, and uh, quickly uh, it was. <laughs> The timing was interesting as well to add because I was just returning from my father's funeral. Um, and uh, as I walked in after being gone for a week, they you know pulled me aside and let me go. It's kind of a double whammy. Um, but that's what, what I mean. No warning? No, no letter of warning? No nothing? Correct. Yeah. And, wow. and How long did you work there for? Not long, like six, seven months. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I guess you know I, I want to to grapple this stuff and be the uh, kind of man and leader that I know I am. Um, it's a little frustrating because it feels like you know I have a, a strong religious background. My father was a pastor, and I became a pastor after Bible college, and and uh, later in life. Um, you know, be, became, you know, a free thinker and, and started this journey trying to make money um, for myself outside of uh, uh, my background. And um, I've just run into this issue over and over where it's, you know, it plays itself out in different ways, but um, I'm just not fitting in <laughs> to any corporate America uh, setting, you know, um, and it's, uh, I really, I know I can. I mean, I was, I was extremely successful uh, in a church world, and I know that I'm even more grounded and and logical now. Um, so it's just. Well, but hang on, hang on. So okay. when you had the conversation with the customer, yes, and she said she was what she was so upset that you were being condescending to her that she got you, she got you fired, like she wanted to get you fired. Yeah. And I obviously don't know what the conversation was like. Um, but uh, do, looking back on the conversation itself, I mean, do you feel that you handled it in a very negative or destructive way or, or what? Yeah, you know, there was, there's a, I, I did not take the time to be empathetic um, like I knew to. There's the whole motto, fix the customer, you know, then the issue. And she was upset in the, in the beginning. And it wasn't an issue that was um, something we supported. It wasn't on our side. And, uh, you know, I spent a good 20 minutes testing, showing her that our system was working and kind of giving her some next steps. And she was very, she didn't like. Was this, was this a life or death situation? I mean, you know, was it? You know? No, I mean, uh, contracts. So, you know, for her, yeah, she had deadlines. And I'm sure there was more than, you know, $200,000 on the line. Oh, so fairly, it wasn't like you know my 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 Amazon Kindle isn't working. Or exactly. Something like it was no, exactly. Important. Okay, for her at least, right? Absolutely, but but you know um, there of course there's the tug of war between company resources not wanting to 
uh, spend two hours helping her with this other system that we don't make or support <laughs> just to, you know, please the Wait, customer. Were you, were you trying to help her with a system that you guys don't make or support? Well, I drew the line. You know, I took I took it as far as I could, gave her next steps and things like that. But the whole point was my angle was not addressing her emotional state. Instead, I was being logical and showing here's the facts. Here's what you know. We can see our system's working. And um, in that, so it was sorry. So it was it was her interaction with another system, and it was the other system that was the problem. Yes. Right, and she obviously didn't want to start initiating a call with people who had this other system because there was a deadline and, and she was freaking out, right? Correct. Right, right. So is it fair to say that factually you were in the right? To, yes, but I hold myself to a, a... No, 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 hang on. No, no. See, man to man okay. or K to K, right? The standard is, uh, like, if, if factually you were correct, like you spent 20 minutes saying to this woman, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to help you through this, so we're going to try and figure out what's working... And then after 20 minutes, you say, well, I can't fix this because this is outside what we have made or we support, right? You know, I'm sorry that you're upset, but there's no magic that, I mean, you, you can't fix it, right? Right, right. And when we reach that and point... That, sorry, hang on. So, so, no. so that reality, like if you were factually correct, and if she started to escalate, right? I don't know if your calls are recorded or whatever, but if the woman started to escalate and become abusive... Because you couldn't fix something that you couldn't fix. Then, you know, if I were your manager, again, this is assuming that this is all the... I mean, I would support you. Yeah. Um, I think... Like, I'm sorry. I mean, like if somebody... Somebody calls, like if let's say I work at, at some car dealership and somebody calls up and say the engine isn't working, the engine isn't working, you bastards, you're supposed to have fixed the engine, it's not working, I'd be really sympathetic and right. we'd do anything we could, right? And then the guy says, well, it's actually my lawnmower engine. Right. I'd say, well, why are you calling the car dealership? Like you're, what? <laughs> right. We can't fix you. We didn't touch it. We can't fix your lawnmower engine, right? And if the person then said, well, you're not being sympathetic enough. You know, the only sane response is, well, you're not being sane enough. Yeah. Yeah. We can't, uh, fix. We can't fix what we can't fix. Yeah, there's, there's got to be, I think, reinforcement and strategy from your, your uh, department. The, the department itself has to reinforce and give their front lines, um, you know, strategies, positioning, ways out of those situations and in this case, um, it's a newer company. So, uh, you know, I well, was doing my you best. Can, you can escalate it up the chain, right? I mean, if the, if the person's being completely unreasonable, say, well, I'll, I'll put you in touch with my manager, right? Because uh, I can't, uh, I, I sympathize and I, you know, I can understand in your situation, I'd be equally frustrated, but I can't, A, I can't uh, fix it, and B, like I certainly won't be subjected to verbal abuse or something that is not my fault and I can't fix, right? Yeah, that would have been the wiser, the wiser approach. I mean, do you have, like in, in the uh, customer service standards or manuals in that company or in that industry, is there a standard which says uh, you can't, uh, like, don't accept any verbal abuse? I think, yeah, I think in the policies you might have uh, a three-strike um, option where you can ask the customer kindly three times, you know, um, and uh, warn them and then disconnect. 
And which, was she being verbally abusive, or did that just come? Did, you know, it was. She remained, I think, as I did, using business, you know, uh, uh, approved language or whatever HR friendly language. But um, we uh, we reached that point, and she began, you know, digging in. Well, if you would have just, and you would have just, you know, explained it this way or that way, and you know, the whole the whole time she wanted me to be in this other system, you know, helping her with that, and so. Um, at that point's when I began the three strike and I'm like, well, you know, it, which she, it, it wasn't really appropriate for the three strikes cause she wasn't saying F you this and that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, uh, she was, uh, you know, I had been moved emotionally to a point where, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really take the time to try and hear her out, let her kind of vent. And then, do my apologies and whatnot, you know, instead. Wait, just apologize, but hang on, hang on. Apologize for what? Her experience? I mean, that's, I guess... No, 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 no. Apologies are when you've done something wrong. Right. Do, I mean, do, do, do does, a, does the company expect you to apologize when it's not your fault and you couldn't fix it? I would say, yeah, the QA department would would certainly expect, uh, you know, a statement of some sort of empathy. And, uh, you know, I'm so, yeah, you can say, I'm sorry, I couldn't help you. Right. But not, I'm sorry, I'm, I did something wrong. And, and these little details are important because in general, you know, we, I'm concerned as a whole that in general, we're just creating and feeding this culture of bullying. Hmm. You know, like like the New York Times can dig up allegations by Ivana Trump from Trump's divorce from like the 90s or whatever, right? And publish this, and people still continue to buy the New York Times. And I'm, this is not you, right? I'm just, the, the culture as a whole is, is just becoming very compliant to bullies, right? So the K thing is, that you don't stand up to bullies. And if you get fired for standing up to a bully, you get fired for standing up for a bully. Good riddance. Mm. Right? Move on. Wow. I mean, in an R-selected world, <laughs> well, I didn't grovel before an irrational and nasty person, so nasty that she worked to get you fired afterwards, right? Right. Wow. Well, I would consider that a mark of honor. I... You know, I lost my job. I stood up to a bully. Well, what the hell did I want to do? Grovel before bullies for the next 40 years? Right. That's interesting um, and, and really helpful. Wait, wait. What are you, what are you feeling when I say that? Because I'm feeling you. a lot. Well, it, it strikes me a lot. I'm feeling that there has been, since I was walking to the train and, you know, coming home that day, um, evaluating obviously <laughs> um one of the things that i maybe been shoving down is um you know i i think i'm an expert in the field and <clears throat> that's how i was feeling and i think i, I was feeling like you know what the, the company made a big mistake excuse me no don't don't i'm <clears throat> cake feeling is cake <laughs> <laughs> Resentment is is resentment and luster are, but deep and genuine feelings are are okay. Uh, so no, don't don't feel shy about your feelings. But um, yeah, as I was evaluating, I, I kept feeling like you know what? 
um, this was a big mistake on their part. And I had a lot to offer. And <clears throat> I, um, it made me want to write a book on the, you know, on my particular knowledge in this, in this area and try to establish myself as an expert and really change the trajectory. You know, um, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, traveling the world and on television as a Christian and I'm a dynamic and I can do things, but it feels like <clears throat> I don't know how to present myself um, outside of a church world, you know, in a way. Sorry, did you say oh, how to present yourself outside of a church world? Right, at least effectively. And um, like you know me. why that is, right? No, I don't. Well, I don't either. <laughs> I'd like to know. Why. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you what I think. And then, because you, you don't have a backup product, right? Because when you're in the church, you're selling heaven, right? Yeah. You're selling heaven, and you are not the product, but heaven is the product, and you have value and credibility because you are perceived to be the path or the gateway to heaven, right? Right. They're buying a stairway to heaven. <laughs> Whereas in the business world, outside of that, you don't have an intangible giant product behind you that gives you credibility. Right. Right? I mean, I've always said to people, I, th 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 this conversation is not, I'm not selling happiness here. You know, all I can do you know, all I've got is three chords and the truth. <laughs> song goes, right? And I, I'm certainly not selling happiness. And, and I'm certainly not saying, well, you know, this, this conversation, you know, you've got you to gotta donate to this show and you've got to do what this show says. And that's the only way you're going to be happy. Everything else is a lie, right? Like I've got a monopoly on happiness and you need to do specific things that benefit me materially and then you'll be happy. Well, that would be a giant con and, and completely the opposite of uh, philosophy. I mean, it's my responsibility to be to be frank about the difficulties that the truth present in this world, the only consolation being that, you know, like Sigmund Freud said when the Nazis came and expelled him from Austria, I think it was, and he said, you know, they, they burnt all my papers and they burnt all my books. This is massive progress. A hundred years ago, they would have burnt me. I, was, I just did a podcast today on hatred and envy of the rich where I was saying that Yes, bankers just ripped off the taxpayers for trillions of dollars, but they did it without a war. That's massive progress. Like they stole the money, but they didn't steal it by unleashing tsunamis of the blood of the young on the planet. Believe it or not, this is massive progress <laughs> in, in, in humankind. And so you had a product that you represented that people automatically wanted and because of your position they automatically believed that you were the gateway to achieving eternal life in heaven right and now you don't have the backup god squad and you don't have the invisible and imaginary benefit of heaven to sell to people and so you have to work your credibility and your impact and your importance without fantasy. And that's hard.
I mean, you're you're singing without auto tune now, right? It's just you. And uh, I I do have a lot to offer. It's it's interesting. I'm so glad we got to talk at this point in time because, uh, of course, I'm on a job hunt and uh, pushing aside, um, you know. Um, all these other efforts. I mean, I've got a manuscript started already with, you know, maybe six chapters for, for a book, um, in the field and that I'm in. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think that's what I needed to hear that, that it's, uh, uh, even though there isn't a magic man in the sky to promote that there's some really good ideas, um, of value that, uh, that um, I can be representing. Is this your first time you've been fired? <laughs> no, it's not. And how how was your how were your firings in the past relative to your? I'm trying to think. I've been fired a couple of times in my life. Never for anything particularly important, uh, and and. It was always for the better. Right. You know, you feel rejected like you're cast out from the tribe. You know, ostracism is painful for us, you know, because ostracism was like death in the past. Either personal death, because nobody guarded us while we slept and there were predators around, or gene death in that we wouldn't get the eggs <laughs> and and therefore, right, wouldn't get to pass on our genes. And firing, you know, feels like a rejection. But, um, you know, firing, uh, firing uh, simply says that your values and the values of your employer really don't match. Hmm. You know, I mean, I thank, I thank the ever-living titties of every woman who ever dumped me <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> before I met my wife. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tossing my skanky ass to the sidewalk. I hugely, massively, genuinely, deeply, and in a very humble and heartfelt way, thank them for not finding me up to scratch. <laughs> what a glorious uh, thing that was. Uh, what an incredible benefit that was to myself, to my wife, obviously to my daughter. Uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, yeah. at the time, yeah, it was painful. Oh, it's rejection. It's terrible, right? I get it. I understand that, and I'm not trying to minimize all of that. But in hindsight, I'm glad I got kicked out by those stilettos. I am just thrilled. That's, that's absolutely correct in this case. You bounce around till you land where you're supposed to be. Especially if where you're supposed to, like, especially if what you're doing is original. If you're thinking for yourself, you, you, you bounce around until you land where you're supposed to be. I mean, this is like my 20th job or something like that, you know? Like, you just, you bounce around till you land where you're supposed to be. Until, you know why, if you have integrity, do you know what you do, Ruben? You bounce around until you don't have to make any fucking compromises. And this job, talking down crazy people, sounds like a whole lot of compromises. You bounce around until you compromise no more.
And uh, this is the first job for me with no compromises. That's why there's no upgrade from here. This is the first job where I can make the taste and the truth without looking over my shoulder, without being afraid of being fired. I could be fired by the listeners for sure. <laughs> right. But that's only if I do that which neither I nor the listeners want, which is to make arguments unsupported by reason and evidence, and uh, if I make a mistake, to refuse to correct it. So, so I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, uh, so that you know, we're aligned as far as that goes. But you bounce around until you don't, until you, till you land at a place where you don't have to compromise. And this last job, you had to compromise, big time. And even if you, even if this woman had really tried hard to get you fired, and they'd be like, "Well, we'll put you on probation." We think it was really. I mean, oh my God! Thank God they just fired you. Because otherwise, you would have been exposed. Uh, it would have been exposed to you what kind of god awful compromises were expected of you, and how much of your own soulful integrity you were supposed to put through the cheese shredder of corporate compliance. And uh, that would have been <laughs> would have been even worse. So, so uh, that's I've maybe I'm putting my, stumbling or. or things in my way to a, to a life with no compromise. Um, I've over the years been, de been developing these workshops and in a few cities or throughout California and Hawaii, I've been able to, um, set up certain workshops with youth centers and whatnot, where, um, I use hip hop and, and music to, uh, do these classes where critical thinking is the actual curriculum, but you know, the hook or what have you is the music and, working with art and things. Um, and that's where I flourish. I mean, it's, it's like the best time to be in a setting there where, um, young minds are, are, you know, uh, really active and, and involved because of the music. And then, uh, the way the, the curriculum set up, you know, the conversations that we get to have are, are really just expanding, asking new questions that, you know, they maybe haven't asked themselves before. And uh, it's an exciting thing, but I keep telling myself I have to get this great job, make all this money, have this bank account so I can really launch, you know, something uh, uh, permanent and, and whatnot with this project. And um, maybe there's... <laughs> no, you just, you mean, you just have to put out a message where you don't compromise, right? I'm going to go out on a limb here that when you say you're teaching kids through hip hop, these aren't a lot of kids dancing around swords in Scottish kilts. Right. So, you know, you're talking to a, a community that, of course, has massive problems with single motherhood, to name one of many uh, of the problems. Yes. Right. And can you be honest uh, in these in this environment about how incredibly destructive single motherhood is to, to society, to themselves as a whole? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's there's totally... no compromise. Right. Exactly. As opposed to, you know, you somebody takes you aside. It's like, no, no, we can't blame the sainted single mothers. It's whitey. Right. Remember, <laughs> go back to Whitey all the time. Uh, institutional, which just means Whitey. But anyway, so, I mean, if you can do that stuff, right, if you can talk to kids, um, you know, black kids and all that, frankly, about, you know, the, the challenges and opportunities right. of, you know, a very energetic and vibrant and creative cultural environment, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with, of course, significant, some significant cultural problems as well. I mean, what a fantastic thing that would be. I mean, I think that deep down we all, no truth when we hear it. We all thirst for it. 
and some of us thirst to drink its blood and kill it as quickly as possible. <laughs> but we all know it when uh, when we see and hear it. It's that you know that deep throated conviction that of course a lot of pastors are able to imitate. Oh, maybe they really believe it too. I don't know. But um, if you can do that, I mean, God, wouldn't that be a little bit more fulfilling than helping horrible people work with systems you don't really care about? Yeah, help uh, moms avoid their their mothering and uh, finish their reports and get their uh, <laughs> contracts on time. Um, yeah, no, indeed, and and, and that's that's certainly something that I, you know I'm determined to achieve. It's just. Life keeps coming, like I said earlier, um, and uh, keeping. No, but that's uh, passive, right? Okay. That's like you're 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 tied to the tracks, and the train's coming. Okay. Right? Life doesn't keep coming; it's your life. Okay. You know, like I want to get some stuff done, but emails keep coming. It's like, well, then stop responding to emails. Do you mean bills keep coming, and you got to work? Bills, rent. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um. Right, but see, then you can take a job and know that you have the goal of reaching out to the hip-hop kids or whatever, right? You, you can take that exactly. job and, and go with that, knowing that that's your goal. And if you get fired from the job, it's like, well, you know, one step closer to the hip-hop dream of okay. bringing truth to kids, right? And um, No, that's that's fantastic perspective, Stefan. That's exactly what I knew Um would happen if I got a chance to talk to you. So it's fantastic to uh, have gotten to do so. When the, the K the K response to rejection is to evaluate the rejector, right? The R response is to feel, oh, how terrible, you know? Oh, this is the the, the bottom falls out of your universe and this and that and the other, right? The confident response to being rejected is to look at who's rejecting you. Now, if good people reject you, well, that's not great, right? That's not great. On the other hand, if evil people don't like you, well, that's very good. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. The, the idea of needing to be liked by everyone, that comes from, it's not only to do with women, but it, it has a lot to do with the fact that through our evolution, women needed to raise children collectively and they needed to work in very close quarters and proximity with um, other women uh, and therefore everyone had to like you and this is why women tend to be value-free and avoid conflict and so on and take out all their frustrations with conformity by brutalizing their children. <laughs> Again, we're just talking in general and uh, throughout our evolution. And um, men uh, had the luxury of disliking other men because you could go out in separate hunting parties. You could segregate yourself, right? You could not have people come with you, right? You stay home with the women, right? Or whatever, right? And so um, for, for men, the, the quality was, was really important. This is the K, the K driver, right? The, the people are not all equal. And so for for women, if you're rejected, that's just generally bad because you don't have the chance to reject people who are rejecting you. But men have much a much greater opportunity and are much more comfortable with being rejected. And the, the way that you survive rejection is you evaluate who's rejecting you. And if who's rejecting you 
is a wonderful, kind, and heroic person, well, that's a wake-up call to get your game up, right? To improve yourself. But if who's rejecting you is some, I don't know, some shallow idiot or some coward or some evil person, you know, everyone who does good in this world gets criticized, and, and the important thing is to evaluate the critic. Evaluate the critic. I was actually taught this. You know, there was a, uh, there's a something in, in English literature, which I took for two years when I was younger in, in college, uh, the unreliable narrator, which is the, the guy says, oh, yeah, this is what happened. And uh, as it turns out, <laughs> it's really not. Or there's something else. Um, there's a, a famous play. I think it was originally written in Japanese called Rashomon, which um, I ended up having to do a fair amount of research on uh, when I was at theater school and uh, explain to the class. And uh, it's a story told uh, a, a man and his bride come across a robber in the woods. And it's the same story three times. And the man, of course, is heroic and fights the robber and saves the bride and, and all that. And right, the bride is heroic and outwits the robber. And the robber, you know, gets what he wants. And it's the same story told. It's the same, you know, and you never actually know what happened. Right? All you know is these, these sort of multiple perspectives. And so the unreliable narrators is really important. There's no, you know, critics all have their own motives and their own preferences. And um, when you get fired, it's really important to evaluate who is rejecting you. You know, if you, uh, I don't know, years ago, years and years ago, I was interested in a woman. More than a little interested in a woman. And I don't want to get into the whole story, but basically... She ended up as a single mom. Ooh, I can hear everyone rushing to their keyboards, apparently trying to explain why I think what I think about single moms. Trust me, I thought this before then, right? But I grew up with one. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, anyway, we have to go back to another time. But um, so, you know, she, I, I, you know, I just, you know, I wasn't quite good enough for her. <laughs> I just, I didn't. I just, I wasn't up to scratch, you see. I didn't, uh, I didn't meet her highly rigorous standards called not being there. <laughs> right? I mean, I know I'm a great husband and I'm a great dad. And uh, I just, you know, didn't, I wasn't up to scratch. Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't do it for her. Because, you know, I was competing with not being there at all, <laughs> right? I mean, that's just, that's just sad. It's just sad. Evaluate the rejector. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't, listen, I haven't done really any internet stalking and all that, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. It, it occasionally will percolate to me. Let's just put it, put it that way. It occasionally percolates to me. Maybe and, she really valued a full head of hair and foresaw the uh, coming hairline. <laughs> I'm, listen, man, I'm still less bald. I'm still less bald than someone who isn't there at all. I bring That's more right. hair to the table right. than someone who isn't there at all. He's too short. Yeah. I'm still taller than someone who isn't there at all. You don't make enough money. Well, that's different because of the welfare state. <laughs> but anyway. Um, 
Oh, yeah. No, there was this, this other woman who was like, uh, you know, you're just not ambitious enough. Like, OK, I, I <laughs> there are certainly <laughs> legitimate things that I could be criticized about. Not being ambitious enough is certainly not one of them. And uh, yeah, last uh, last I heard, she was a Pilates instructor. <laughs> because nothing says ambition like lift your butt a little more. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, people, I mean, so so many people over my life in my life have accused me of being like a dreamer, out of touch with reality, lost in my own thoughts, impractical, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, let's uh, let's measure up, right? Let's see, let's see how it goes, right? The longer that life goes, the more people tend to become what they criticize, um, if their criticisms are irrational, because it's all just projection and junk like that. But so. So I guess just to make sure that I'm really going to leave this um, clear uh, with trying to, I guess, put the RK in, in, in relation to all this life experience and goals and whatnot. But it sounds like in practice, my next steps are really to be identifying our traits. And in that process, I'm giving myself the tools to... Uh, find better, you know, um, uh, I guess build better uh, pathways <laughs> um, in my mind um, and better responses. I, I'm just trying to make sure, you know, that I can unify this stuff. And I really do like the clarity that that RK uh, studying, you know, studies are, are, are giving me. Um, well, you need to find other Ks. Mm. Right. You need a pack. Right. You surround yourself with R's, you're going to become an R. Right? Surround yourself with K's, you're going to become a K. Right? Recognize the fundamental biological, not just incompatibility, but oppositionality of the R versus the K's. You know, I treat K's with respect. I do not treat R's with respect once they've revealed themselves. I'm not going to pretend. And it's also not good for them. Right. I mean, the only way that R's become K is just learning how to deal with discomfort. You know, biologically speaking, R's have empathy without standards, right? Which is why, well, the poor, <laughs> right? Uh, but but K's also feel empathy, but we have the capacity to intercept that empathy and figure out whether it's justified. Um, people inflict the punishments they're the most afraid of, right? So people who, um, you know, this woman was terrified of having her economic self-interest harmed, and so what did she do? She harmed her economic self-interest, right? Right. And people will always inflict the punishments that they most fear themselves. And that's how you know the weaknesses of your attackers, right? People were trying to, to, to humiliate you, and it's like, okay, so you're the most afraid of humiliation, so that's what I can do. And then I'll win. Right? There's no way to attack without revealing your soft spot, right? And so, Ks have a very high in-group loyalty, a very high in-group preference. They'll let everyone who participated in the hunt feed. Ours have no in-group preference at all. 
So your business, the business that you were in, of course it has loyalty to the customers, but it should have loyalty to standards as a whole. And as somebody who was within the organization, that's just one customer, but you're an employee who deals with many customers. And they should have had uh, a preference for you. I mean, you're a honorable, decent guy. You're, your father had just died. He said you came, from, you came from his funeral. Right. So where's their loyalty to you? And I asked them in the exiting uh, meeting, I, I said, what about the you know, 250 cases a month of just satisfied customers. What about all the customer kudos? What about all the, you know, surveys, 100%, you know, what about the fact I was a top performer this whole past six months? Um, you know, and it's just deaf ears. Have you ever seen the you movie know. Goodfellas? Yeah, years back, though. Okay, so, I mean... I'm I'm not going to apologize for spoilers for movies that are more than 20 years old, right? <laughs> yeah. But but in Goodfellas, right, Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci are like uh, they're buddies in the mafia for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, right? They're friends. They hang out together. They they've spent countless hours uh, together, and they're allies. You say friends, they're evil people, whatever, right? But they're allies. And then the Robert De Niro character has to get the Joe Pesci character killed, and he does doesn't look back right now i remember even 20 years ago when i first watched that movie and it is a it is a great movie it's a terrifying movie and it's a horrifying movie but it's a really really great depiction of an r-based society there is and i remember thinking like how could he do that how could he possibly do that how could robert de niro's character possibly do that to joe pesci's character is there no loyalty? Has there been no accumulated positive regard for 20 years of being allies and, quote, friends, right? And the answer is, well, no. So I, to me, this, this was incomprehensible. Like, ah, I thought it was unbelievable. I couldn't imagine, right? But then I've obviously, like most people who've done anything with their lives, I've made mistakes in choosing my companions and I've been betrayed and, and all that and I get like I just because I am a very loyal person I made the mistake of <laughs> mistaking the world for myself right and now I get it well that's yeah we'll hang out it's like a bunch of rabbits right a bunch of rabbits sitting on a in a field one of them gets grabbed by a hawk and the other's like oh, they don't even interrupt their eating they could have played together since they were infants. One of them goes and gets, there's no pair bonding. No in-group loyalty, no social bonding or anything like that. And they just, uh, there's no, no loyalty. Right? So when you're going and saying, well, wait a minute, haven't I accumulated some valuable capital in this company? They're like, nope, because they're our selected. We don't care. It's convenient for us in the moment, so we don't want to confront this woman. We don't want to get into any more trouble. We, you know, no. Bye-bye. When you're saying, well, wait a minute, where's the loyalty? But if there are selected, there's no such thing. Does that make sense? No, it really does. 
and I like the challenge of surrounding myself with uh, K's. I mean, I, I do hunger for it. It's not the easiest thing to. Uh, Shit, no. It's not the easiest to, thing to find at all. <laughs> right. I'd love to uh, just start uh, connecting, you know, every day and working on projects with all types of uh, like minded, um, enthusiastic K's. <laughs> And that's what you need. People you can trust. People who you can rely upon. People who have strong in-group preferences. People who, whose values you share. And if you want to get betrayed, just go walk out the door and trust the first person you meet. Right. Maybe the thousandth person you meet. Person you meet. But uh, betrayal is as easy as breathing to, to get, right? Yeah, well, I mean, Catch, catching betrayal as a carbon-based life form is like a Cardassian ass catching dick. I mean, it's just not that hard, right? All right, listen, man, I got to move on to the next caller. Indeed, but uh, you know, I wish you the very best. And you know, when you get used to looking for the R versus K stuff, you can find them pretty, pretty clearly and easily. Uh, you know, ask about people about their family backgrounds, ask about their degree of self-knowledge, and so on. Right. You know, since certainly since the First World War, and and definitely after the Second World War, we've just has successive waves of R gene sets washing over humanity, and we're largely R now. That's okay. I mean, it's happened before in history, and it'll happen probably again in history, at least until we get peaceful parenting all, no- uh, all, all knocked out of the park. But, um, you know, they're still out there, right? We're still out there. We're just Absolutely. a little scattered. Yeah, no, and I'm sharing, propagandized. sharing the show. I feel like uh, this show uh, and uh, is one of the best ways to really strike up those conversations and help. You know, some of my friends who I know are, are intelligent and sophisticated, um, you know, identifying stuff in a way where usually it would <laughs> uh, stop progress. But anyways, yeah, th- this show has been awesome with that. And uh on my way out, I do want to mention um, this this stuff you've been giving us with the politics is amazing. Um, and it sparked up a big thing between my brother and I. He's uh, um, starting to really get into politics uh, as a union um, representative. And now he's uh, picking up some steam and stuff, but but totally on a, on a a communist path. <laughs> and, uh, so him and I've been talking about, about your show and whatnot, and he, he would love to get on and debate in a way. So I just wanted yeah, to raise welcome. that. Okay. No, listen, I, I love it when people come on a debate. It's, it's great fun. And, uh, I would you know, love, I, mean, I can't the, take the, the, the swords He's... get sharper when they, the swords get sharper when they hit other shots, other swords. So yeah, it's, uh, Absolutely. Come on. good. Okay. Cause I, I, I try to, uh, you know, to get into it with him, but uh, man, it'd be awesome to have you two kind of go at it. He's intelligent and he'll be level-headed, so I think it'd make oh, for a great conversation. Fantastic. I, awesome. I look forward to it. Please tell him he's, he's welcome anytime. Right on. All great. Right. Well, Thanks, thank man. You Appreciate much. it, uh, Ruben. Have a great night, and uh, this will work out for the best. I know that that sounds like a real Hormark cliche, but there's no. a lot of truth in that uh, in Indeed, that and I know that- I'll be reaching back out uh, in no time at all, talking about a, a great program that we've got going, and uh, uh, 
thank you for the success <laughs> at that point. <laughs> oh, listen, man, if you want to, you know, when you get your, when you get your stuff going, just let us know whatever we can do, whatever I can do to help publicize it. Uh, I'll certainly be, be eager and, and help and happy to do. So, uh, awesome. uh, just let us know. Right on, Stefan. And thank you too much. Thanks, man. Right Take on. Care. All right. Well, up next is Justin, and Justin wrote in and said, I want to talk about the lack of nuance when views about the left are expressed. Ignoring that many on the anti-authoritarian left entirely agree with many points that you raise, the violence of the state being bad, that voluntary interactions are the best way to run a society, etc., but by then calling them a virus simply because they would rather see a different version of how goods and services are exchanged seems to be rather short-sighted. Us anarchists are small in number at the best of times, and if we want to remove the state, we have to stop arguing with each other and focus on what we can agree upon. The best thing being that all of these varying ideas on the anti-authoritarian axis can be tried in a free market of ideas and capital in a voluntary way. So let's look forward to that and celebrate the possible diversity of ideas that could flourish without a state interference in our lives. That's from Justin. Yo. Nice to meet you, Justin. How you doing? Good to meet you as well. Thank you. Yeah, great. Yourself? Well, thank you. So I'm not really sure what um, what your proposal is, if if that makes sense. I'm not really sure what it is you're suggesting. Are you suggesting that I do something different? In which case, what what would it be? Yeah. So, and I don't mean that to sound. I don't mean to. Well, what the hell do you mean? I mean I genuinely don't sort of understand what's actionable in your critique. Yeah, sure, of course. The main problem to me seems to be that when you make these almost great sweeping comments about – I mean this was left on your um, uh, determinism in socialism or something video about the left as this giant kind of almost – it comes across as monolithic thing that all agrees on you know that's that state socialism and what have you is the only way to you know increase the wealth of the working class and all that kind of stuff so it, it seems like you might end up throwing the baby out the bathwater as it were and i worry that people who might be interested in your ideas are going to get turned off of them because there's not you know not every socialist is on the communist kind of um a Russian model and not every socialist is on kind of, you know, the social, social Democrat model we have here in uh, Wait, hang Britain. on, hang on, hang on. I mean, I, I, I confess to just feeling a bit annoyed already because when you're lecturing me that not every socialist is a communist, I, I can't even imagine any time that I've ever said that. No, no, no. I know that. I know that. I'm not quote lecturing you. I'm just saying it comes across as if when you, you make the left. No, no, no. It, no, no. Hang on, hang on. It, it comes across as is already kind of a weasel word, right? A weasel phrase. Because that's something that, like, my impression is it comes across as. My feeling is that. It's like, what have I actually said, right? You've got to be a bit more rigorous than that. If I've actually said all socialists are communists and well, you all called communists are totalitarians. You called the left, and I quote, a virus, which is quite, you know, strong words for something that not all of the left is the virus in the, you know, What's the word I'm looking for? Using the mechanics of the state as their way of expressing their viewpoint, which is primarily what you know anarchists are generally against. That's something we can all agree on. That's the point I'm trying to raise: is that by you know we, we can visualize um, 
political views on the four-way axis, you know, left and right, authoritarian and anti-authoritarian. And there's plenty of people on the anti-authoritarian axis who would agree with you, but they happen to sit in a more left-hand wing, uh, left-wing viewpoint. That's a difference of societal technique rather than necessarily a complete philosophical viewpoint. Of, you know, we well, need what is societal? To do sorry, this. I don't understand what societal. There's a lot I don't understand, but what really jumps out is I don't understand what you mean when you say societal. Well, it's, it's economics, isn't it? It's like one person might not might prefer to shop at, say, a cooperative owned by, you know, the workers in the place, and some people might rather shop at a normal industry like, you know, uh, a big chain of supermarkets down the road, and that. That's their personal choice, and that's part of their ethics. Sorry, what does that have to do with left versus right? I mean, well, neither of those would be. Left hang on, hang on, right. sorry. No, because neither of those would involve the initiation of the use of force, right? No, 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 no. You, you're misunderstanding me. Left versus right is not part of statism versus unstatism. It's capitalism versus socialism and authoritarianism is the use of the state in making sure those ideologies are then carried out i just want to make sure we're on the same page you're right well, hang on hang on are you saying that model hang on are you saying that the degree of private property is unrelated to the size and power of the state because you said capitalism has nothing to do with the size and power of the state capitalism versus socialism but capitalism is uh, private ownership of the means of production, and socialism is public ownership or government ownership of the means no, of production. No, 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 it's Socialism can, of course, mean that, that it's about the state owning it, but it doesn't have to. As many um, people I've talked to on the left-hand side, I should put this out there, I don't subscribe to any particular form of anarchism because, you know, you listen. Okay, can you give me, sorry, then can you give me a definition of the left that is coherent yeah. and doesn't say, well, but there's another version of it that, that, that you know, I mean, so if, 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 it, if it involves both the uh, public ownership of the means of production, government ownership of the means of production. No, 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 it doesn't necessarily entail governmental owns the means of production what it means is that the people who work the factories should some people would say by proxy of the state i would say that's the horrible idea obviously but Doesn't there's this. nothing in there's nothing hang on but there's nothing in capitalism that prevents workers from owning the means of production yeah i agree with you but i i can see that and i agree with that and that's what i say in my next point on my question but the point I'm trying to raise is that that is, especially in the UK, which I can only talk of from where I live because I'm not embedded in you know, American culture, is that, and I'm sure many people from Europe and the UK listen to your show, I know I do, is that when you say, that's con considered anyway over here, if it's not, then that's obviously a problem of semantics, which I apologize for if I've raised a purely semantic point that doesn't mean anything is that that's generally considered to be a left-wing viewpoint, is that socialism is? is socialism, left-wing policy, is the people owning the means of production. Well, all people own means of production. I mean, there's no, there's no robot that owns a factory that I know of, and no space aliens. All means of production are owned by people, so that no, may the, be the a little workers. unspecific. The workers. The well, are you saying that the managers the aren't people? No, no, I'm not. Of course I'm not bloody saying that. What I'm saying is that 
most people on left wing are going to say that it's not just up to the managers or the, the um, uh, shareholders or whatever to own the company and reap the majority of the benefits of the person's labor. I'm undecided as to which system is completely best. But Well, hang on. So I'm, I'm just trying to break down what it is that you're trying to say because – Listen, man, I've been a manager and I worked pretty damn hard. So it's kind of offensive for me. Not that that doesn't mean anything like it's not wrong because it's offensive. Right. But it is, you know, I mean, the idea that there are workers and managers Well, managers work really damn hard. So yeah, that's not a strong enough differentiation. So do you mean that the people who have no experience in managing should be the managers or the people who have the least education in management should be the managers or the people who are least capable of managing should be the managers? Because... You know, if you have a, a factory and you've got a bunch of workers, you know, when I was a manager, I was thrilled when uh, people came up with uh, with great ideas, right? I'm, I just want to raise the point. I'm not saying that I support any particular viewpoint. No, no, no. I, you've said that to... already. What I'm trying to understand is what language you're using. I'm not saying you're an advocate. We, we don't need to say that again because you've already said it twice. But when the socialists say that the workers should own the means of production – I don't know what that means because managers are workers and the means of production didn't spring out of the earth out of nowhere. Somebody had to scrimp and save and invest and risk in order to create those things. Like, so the way, the way that a worker can own the means of production, I guess, is uh, the worker can go out to uh, an unowned – like in a free society, an unowned piece of land and they can homestead that. They can put up fences around it. They can build a log cabin. They can – build a plow out of whatever, and then those are the means of production by which they can produce crops. So, and there's nothing in a free society or capitalism or anything that would say, no, <laughs> you, you can't do that. You go work in a factory, right? So the, the workers can, and they can save up their money, and then they can choose to buy a better plow, or they can choose to buy a, a combine harvester that uh, is even more efficient. They can choose to buy automatic strawberry and grape pickers, which I've recently found out actually exist. And they can choose, and there's nothing in a free market that would prevent them from doing that. In fact, if they did a great job, they'd be amply rewarded. Yeah, I mean, I completely uh, see that and agree that. I think what, from a left-wing standpoint, the view is that the, you know, the people on top, I don't know, that's such a ridiculously nebulous term, you'll have to excuse me for that, is that those of the managerial and upper middle class and upper class positions take an inordinate amount of wealth from the labor that's put in by you know the more menial type workers you know you've you've well, said that's, it that's there's no but there's no problem with that in a free society because if you're underpaying your workers they can go and get jobs with people who pay them better uh, this is an interesting uh thing is that i mean unemployment obviously is already in well relatively high i don't no 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 no, we can't, no hang on hang on hang on we can't jump from theoreticals to state-run capitalism as it stands now right so we're talking about a free market environment and in a free market environment if whatever they're taking too much of the workers wages whatever that might even mean uh, everybody wants to be paid more and everybody wants for, for what they're paid for and everyone wants to pay less for whatever everybody else pays for or, or provides. And so, but there's a balance, right? And if, let's say, I take 90% of the workers' wages and keep it for myself, right? I sell their wages at $40 an hour and I pay them $4 an hour. Well, I've just created a massive, massive opportunity for a whole bunch of people to rush in and start bidding up the price of the workers, 
right? To underpay your workers creates a competitive vacuum that brings competition in, right? Like nature abhors a vacuum. And if you underpay your workers and you're making a, an obscene amount of money, everyone is like, whoa, man, easy money out there. <laughs> and they come in and they pay the workers $5 an hour. And then they're making 35 And then someone comes in and says, six, well, 34 is still, right? And you just bid the wages up. So I don't know how it's possible to continue to, and, and underpaid and overpaid, these are all just subjective terms anyway. Like, what is the fair price for something? Well, I don't know. Whatever somebody wants to pay for it. I, I have no idea what that is. But um, it's certainly the competitive pressures are, it's a very bad idea to underpay your workers. Because you train them, right? It costs a lot of money to train workers. I mean, I, I know. Even if, like, when I hired programmers, it was one thing that they knew how to program, but they also had to learn you know, the hundreds of thousands of lines per module of code that I and others had written already. And they had to learn how to maintain it. They had to learn the business model and they had to learn our customer preferences. They had to develop relationships. So if you underpay your workers, you're training them in your business. And then if they go, you've just lost that whole investment. Yeah. Underpaying yeah. your workers is a really bad idea. I, un I understand all that. And I, I think that's um, uh, great. That all makes, you know, fantastic um, logical sense if i could just uh so just to clarify then you you know have obviously no problem at all with you know things like uh worker-owned cooperatives and all that kind of stuff traditionally viewed certainly in my culture whether it's in your culture as well i couldn't possibly comment as left-wing um ideas that that that's you know that's fine to you i i don't know what worker-owned cooperatives means right okay so i mean everybody who's in a business is usually working Right. What it means. I, I mean, is, when I ran a business, there was no one who came in and played Quake all day, and so everything is a worker-owned. No, no, <laughs> so no to speak, Steph, right? it, What it means is that the shareholders of the company are the workers themselves, and that those people all have a say to a lesser or greater degree, depending on how the company's set up. Obviously, there's massive differences between how they kind of constitutionally, as it were, set up their businesses is that every worker who works there owns, even if it's in a small part, a part of the company, meaning they share in uh, the profits directly of the greater company, the entity as a whole, which is obviously um, great for the um, lower paid workers because you know, they uh, share in some of the larger profits and it's good as good incentive for the workers and uh, as far as management's concerned, cause it means you know, it's good to well, keep sure, but as long as, as long as they have the right to, to, to sell their share, Right. Shareholders have the right to yeah, buy yeah, yeah. and sell shares. Right. So so you could say there are 100 workers and each one of them gets one percent of the company for sure. But then you see some workers are going to be smarter. And they're going to be more economically productive and other workers are going to be less smart and are not going to be as economically productive. Some workers are going to have a better work ethic. They're going yeah, to enjoy working more. They might feel more responsible. They're willing to work overtime. And other people won't, right? I mean, and, and they'll want a free ride. I mean, you know, free I mean, ride. You can, there's a, the temptation. Hang on, let me finish. Yes, yeah, sorry, everybody. buddy. And so if you, if you are contributing, like if you, if you have 1% of the company, but you're contributing 5% of the value, then other people are exploiting you because they're taking your hard-earned um, value production. Like let's say um, I, I have, like I'm a, a janitor, right? Or it's a, I sweep the factory floor, right? And I get 1% of the company. And so does the person who, you know, works night and day and travels to sell and all that kind of stuff and has gone to school and all that, right? Well, I didn't go to school <laughs> and I go home, I work nine to five and I get my 15 minute breaks and my hour lunch and I don't have to travel. I'll be away from my family and all that. So one person is providing more value than this. But let's say that as the street 
uh, as the, the sweeper of the factory, I decide to go to night school and get an MBA from Harvard <laughs> or something like that. Harvard. And um, uh, I'm then not just producing a tenth of a percent of value, but I'm suddenly producing 10% of the value because I'm stepping up and doing better. Uh, is it still fair for me to only receive 1% of the profits when I am producing 10% of the value? Uh, of course. Or, uh, or are other people exploiting me then? But this is the, – the thing is with cooperatives, obviously, it depends on how they're run. But that is only part of the incentive. Obviously, a manager or someone of a higher position or someone who puts more into the company can still get paid more. Uh, no, no, hang on. I'm sorry. To, you have to be very specific and precise with these things. There's no such thing as putting more into the company. I don't even know what that means. Well, that's, that's what you've just been saying. No, you've no, provided no, 10% person, no, of the value. No, the person who cre who's producing more value. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. If someone produces more value into the company, so, you know, what you just said, then they can, of course, be paid more for it. That's, I've never said any, no one's ever said, no, someone but who... But isn't that exactly what happens with managers and, as you say, workers? Yes, but... The companies are owned, at least, you know, mostly by everyone inside the company again. And you had no problem with that. So I just want to everyone. Oh, God, everyone owns the company anyway. Like when no, I was a manager, really don't. <laughs> no, because no, no, they do. Because when I like a shareholder has the right to get paid dividends, if that's the way the company is set up, right? You make yep, profits and you, you pay off dividends to your shareholders and they have the right to buy and sell their shares. Now, when I, when I hired someone, we would sign a contract, and that person would, would, be, um, would own, let's say we were paying them $40,000, that person would own $40,000 of the company's profitability. We were just paying them a very big dividend in, in the form of salary rather than a small dividend per share. So they owned the company's resources because we had to pay them $40,000 or $50,000 or $60,000 or more and they owned that share of the company's resources. So employees who are being paid, they own the company because they own or they are uh, legally obliged to receive or have a legal claim upon the, the, the money that is their salary. So they have a legal claim upon the value of the company just as a shareholder does. It's just it's in the form of salary rather than shares. And they could get paid in shares if they wanted. I mean, I don't think anybody would really object to that because they could, of course, take all of their salary and use it to buy shares <laughs> if they want, right? But they choose to take their uh, income in, in cash rather than in shares. I mean, again, you can certainly get paid in shares and lots of people do. So this idea that, that people who are salaried employees don't have any ownership in the company is false because they do have ownership in the company and the company has to pay them. I'm afraid they own the I, company's profits, a portion of the company's profits. Yeah, no, I understand. Now, that's something I'll have to go away and um, put more thought into, as it were. Uh, that's not an, uh, something I'm just going to be able to uh, – that's not an idea I've come yeah, across. You can mull it over. I need to go. Yeah, of course. So as this conversation's gone quite well, really. Is that? So I just want to make one last point before I uh, head off because it's you know 2.30 a.m. here in Britain. Is that – if it's at all possible, is that in uh, your videos, you, you know, we, we talked about this briefly, it's the comment of the left where there's many people who, I just worry that by bashing 
well, it's not really bashing. By making those sweeping generalizations, it's just as bad as someone on the left making a sweeping generalization about those on the right. We, we agree, so many anarchists along Europe who mostly are not ANCAPs, as far as I can tell, all the ones I've met certainly are not. They're usually um, anarcho-communists and all that kind of stuff. Is that if we can all agree on certain you know, principles of you know, state interference equals bad, it would be a great place to start. We can actually work together to start creating the society we want rather than arguing amongst ourselves and pissing each other off. God, but why, why on earth would I want to do anything to work to create a society with communists? Well, it's not, they're not communists on the Russian crazy model, are they? They're part of well, a different axis of mean, political what, thought. Uh, what do they believe? Well, you're familiar, obviously, that the last stage of communism is apparently, although of course it would never actually work out that way because people are corrupt, is that the state is to wither away and this is just, quote, the management of things, and quote, and I can't remember where that comes from in Marx. Pretty sure. No, that's. Uh, but but that's, I mean that's like saying that the end result of my medical treatment is magic. <laughs> well, no, I. I no, no, no. Believe, I, I, I agree believe, with right, Steph. Steph, so I agree. So what is it that they? I don't know what. And I'd love to get an Anca, an Ancom on here, an anarcho communist on here, so they can explain what they're talking about. I mean, if they if they don't, if they don't violate the non-aggression principle, fine. But then then they're anarcho-capitalists because they agree with self-ownership and, and property rights. If they want to violate property rights, they have to initiate the use of force and then we're enemies. Okay. Again, I'll have to go and mull that, um, I'll have to go and mull that one over. Oh, well, yeah. Listen, bring, come, if you want to come back and bring an anarcho-communist, uh, fantastic. I mean, they, they tried this uh, in the 1930s in Spain and it just turned into the usual nightmarish totalitarian hellhole. Well, um, uh, well, it was an internal civil war between the Republican Party with the Poem militias getting attacked by the Stalinist militias and it all went horribly, horribly wrong. But yeah, that wasn't good. I mean, I think anarcho-communism works, works fine in families. <laughs> right? I'm going to charge my daughter rent. But uh, among among adults, um, yeah. I mean, if if it's the old argument, you know, if if you want to be an anarcho commune, you want to set up a commune where nobody owns anything and everybody works collectively, go for it. You know, there's nothing as long as you're not initiating the use of force, you can do anything you want. So the idea that there's a system called anarcho communism that is somehow some social system that people have to participate in is totalitarian in its nature. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. So in that case, it's not as far as I can tell, it's not left-wing ideas you're against what you're against ultimately is left-wing ideas and right-wing ideas i suppose enforced through violence that those are left and right-wing ideas because left and right-wing ideas are the organization of resources in society using the force of the state if you're an anarchist you can't be a communist and now when we say anarcho-capitalist it doesn't mean you have to be a capitalist you can be a communist in an anarcho-capitalist society. You just can't initiate the use of force to violate people's property rights. And so the left and right are both arguments on how the initiation of force should be used to benefit the world. You know, how much rape should we employ in society to make everybody love everybody? Well, the answer is none. <laughs> none at all. And so both the left and the right, and I've done, of course, videos criticizing both the left and the right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the right, I have a little bit 
more sympathy with in some areas, insofar as the right tends to focus their irrationality on religion, whereas the left tends to focus their irrationality on the state. Yeah, And this is why on the left you have more state and less religion, and on the right you have more religion and less state. Now, somebody's irrational beliefs do not directly harm me, whereas somebody, if, if, if they believe that the giant turtles run their lives, that doesn't take any money from me directly. But on the left, the irrational ideas they have are all involved with the initiation of state power yeah. against my property rights, so they're a bit more of an immediate threat. Yeah, I think I understand where the cross-purposes has come from, is that I'm obviously using a different... Um, uh, model of political thought and what using your model you've just perfectly described which is great uh, I can see that what we're saying isn't actually a disagreement so that's all fine that's resolved my question perfectly adequately Excellent. so thank well, you very I much suggest some sleep I mean I hope it's yeah. not too late for you and I yeah. appreciate you staying no, up good. cheers that was thanks, really man. informative thank you bye for now you're welcome all right, thanks, Justin. And up last on the show today is John. And John wrote in... Last? Sorry, w- w- what is this last of which you hey, speak? You got to the last caller today, Steph. How about no, that? I don't like it. Wait, <laughs> I feel appendicitis coming on. Um. <laughs> Maybe there'll be a hand puppet that wants to call in or something, so John won't be the last. No, Mike, just like just before we, we go in, you know, maybe we can just talk you and I for, for the benefit. Because, you know, when we originally started working together, you know, y- your sort of degree of creative input was, I guess, an X factor, right? But it wasn't like, Mike, if you could come up with really great idea for videos and stuff, that would be excellent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of evolved as we uh, began working together, right? Yeah, of course. And uh, I wasn't like, no. <laughs> I have value That's to provide. Stop it. Don't do that. Right. Yeah. right. That's not typing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so where, where people can provide value, they that, that contribution, anybody with any business sense or, or whatever, it's hard to say it's just a business or whatever, but that contribution is, is highly valuable and, and recognized, right? I mean, uh, Robert De Niro in um, Taxi Driver went to see a Bruce Springsteen concert where Bruce Springsteen was, like before he did the movie, he went to see a Springsteen concert. Springsteen, the vicious socialist. But anyway, we'll get to that another time. But, um, and Bruce Springsteen was doing you know, thousands of people in the crowd and Bruce Springsteen was catcalling with the crowd saying, they were cheering and he's like, hey, you talking to me? You talking to me? And uh, Robert De Niro decided to put that in. And the writer later mentioned, not without, <laughs> with no rancor, he was basically just saying that all the best things in that movie were never in the script. Like, all, everything that anybody remembers from that movie had nothing to do with the script and was generally improvised. And the writer was happy. And so Robert De Niro uh, did his improvisation, and uh, the writer was thrilled, and the director was thrilled, and, and everybody was, was happy because it made the movie better, more memorable, more of a classic. And uh, so the idea of just follow the script, man. You know, no, if you've got something of value to add, um, anybody with any sense uh, is going to embrace and, and, and enjoy that. And uh, so I just really wanted to sort of point that out, that this idea that there's this, well, sorry, <laughs> Mike, you're just an employee, so, you know, a contractor, so it doesn't, you know. If only I, I owned the means of production, then we'd be okay. But I, Give me my brain back. I need to go to the washer. I'll just say it too real quick because I had a thought when you mentioned uh, anti-authoritarianism on the left. 
anti-authoritarianism is not always a good thing because there is earned authority. You know, like a doctor or a dentist that's highly skilled in their field, they have earned authority. You don't want to just reject all authority. That's completely irrational. It's the rejection of unearned authority. People that are just anti-authoritarian through and through, I don't know that they are going to fall in line uh, <laughs> along people that I really want to associate with because they're not going to give people credibility when credibility is warranted. And, you know, there is plenty of goods and services in the division of labor amongst humans that uh, I am not capable of creating or providing. And I want some experts to uh, do that stuff for me. So that's that's an Can important you look thing. Up to keep Can you look up Bakunin and shoes? He's got a great quote. About that, Bakunin was of course a 19th century. Bakunin, thunk it cold, Bakunin. It's a B A K U N I N, and uh, something like you know, people say I reject all authority. Heaven forbid, I should re- not. I, I certainly do not reject the authority of a shoemaker in the fixing of my shoes. <laughs> and uh, if you, I, I don't think that's the exact quote, but it's something like perish the thought. Of course, valid authority. Oh, it's the authority a, of the dentist. This is a very long passage by him. Uh. All right. Well, I think I got the gist of it. Yeah. People can look it up for themselves. But uh, all right. All right. Okay. I'm sorry. What was the caller's name? Yeah. The caller's name is John. And John wrote in and said, over thousands of years, countless numbers of mystics and greatest minds and writers in human history have not only had faith in God, but experienced God, as I have myself. Just a few months ago, a woman I know online had a vision of Jesus Christ herself and converted to Christianity. How can you say that so many great minds throughout history are simply wrong because you have not experienced God yourself, in part because you have not even committed to look? Denying other great minds' experience is simply hubris. That's that's the first question that John writes in, or more of a statement. Would you like to elaborate on that a bit, John? Uh, yeah, Stephen, by the way, I would um, just want to let you know that I'm a tremendous fan of yours, and um, I deeply appreciate everything that you do. And um, I, um, I, I, I fantastically admire you. And, and I, oh, hope, I appreciate that. And I hope that we will have this conversation as um, two people who are on the, on, on the same side. I am also, you know, like yourself, deeply committed to truth and deeply committed to, you know, making the world a better place, you know, through, through truth and through insight and through, through philosophy. And, um, so I, I hope we're, hope we're not antagonistic just simply because we have different approaches to the same same subject matter. Oh gosh, I, I would yeah. hope not, and, yeah. and uh, I certainly don't think that I, um, I, I can't. I'm sure it's happened, but I can't really think of many times where I have initiated the use of antagonism. Uh, I certainly don't back down if people. I'm not saying this will be you, but mm-hmm. just my, my philosophy has always been. Uh, treat people the best you can when you first meet them, and after that, treat them as they treat you. And uh, I'm not no. so when people become rude to me, I have no problem being rude back. But I don't right. think that's going to be the case here. So. Right, I feel great. Um, I can. Be, Is there I can some be, more that you wanted to add to the? I um, can be kind of a passionate person, so I, um, yeah. I, I, I'm passion if, if my passion is uh, any times. Um, I uh, I know you're not of this type. Offensive to you, please um, just take a line to my. I come from a positive place. No, I actually, um, I'm, I'm only offended by people who are moderate in their pursuit of truth. Right, uh, right. That's, uh, that's, that's the bad stuff, right? Yeah, and I, I am uh, passionately committed to truth. That is uh, a, a uh, I've dedicated my entire life to it. Good. And it's a very, um, I mean, I, I will sacrifice my life for truth. That is how Excellent. committed I am to it. it is, um, All right, so um, let's go uh, so over the, the statement. Issue, the issue, what, I, what I don't understand, I mean, I've, I've sp- 
spoken with several people, a friend of mine who's a, you know, kind of a very hardcore libertarian uh, who turned me on to your program. And he's also a Christian. And we have discussed over the phone, like, we just don't get you, man. I mean, like, we're like, like, we, <laughs> we, we literally have had conversations where, like, he asked me, like, he said, John, can, do you think an atheist can do God's work? And I, I'm just like, man, I just, I just know, don't know with this guy. <laughs> because, <laughs> because normally, um, you know, normally when, when you're, the whole basis of finding truth, you know, is you, you have to stop, start with a proper logical foundation. And then from that, if you have a set logical foundation that's set in stone and right, you can extrapolate that into greater truths. And if your logical foundation is off, normally, you know, when you start, you know, connecting dots, they, they, they just go astray and they go into La La Land and suddenly you're Karl Marx talking about how everything's equal, which is fucking insane. And, um, um, I, I'm just trying to understand your perspective. Like I, I myself have a very, um, eccentric background. Um, I was a Taoist monk for three years. I graduated from UCLA with a, um, wait, a what, a what, I was a what da- monk? Taoist monk, you know, Taoism as in China, the, the Chinese religion of Taoism. Oh, good. I, I thought you met in Texas, which I was <laughs> no, no, like I'm in not, Dallas. So no, I'm, I'm not Dallas, but a Taoist I think, monk. I think they're good. more known for their cheerleaders, but yes, uh, they okay, are. good. Yeah. And, um, and I also, one of the things I mean is that I had a, um, uh, falling out with God at uh, a period of time in my life because I, I had, had a very abusive childhood, not with my family, but from uh, outsiders. And uh, I was angry with God about that. And, um, I. Sorry, you were angry with God about what? Uh, about the fact that I had a very abusive childhood. And so, you oh, know, I'm sorry, what, about, uh, what happened? Uh, I was, um, I was a very gentle kid and I, um, I, I have a, I have a very high IQ, you know, exceedingly high IQ, and I did well in school, and I'm a little bit different than some people. I've never experienced intellectual insecurity in my life, and one of the things that it took me a while to figure out is that um, the natural response for most people to intellectual insecurity is vindictiveness, and when people feel, you know, that that they feel as if they maybe not not as smart, often people um, they lash out. And I, um, you know, I got straight in my whole life and, and I just got the crap beat out of me, um, for many years of my life on a very regular basis. And I just didn't comprehend why someone would just beat up someone. It didn't make any sense to me. And, and when I was first beat up, I was told to, um, turn the other cheek on my mother. And I just took that as, you know, gospel, you know, and so for years, I just let people just kick little shit out of me for, um, for things that I didn't understand why. And, um, when I finally hit puberty and like, you know, I, I was I excelled at athletics, I was, um, you know, always a strong kid. So people didn't quite understand why I did like that. And I, one time I was being, um, beaten again and I thought I pushed the kid off me and told me to fuck off me and he turned away from me. And I thought to myself, I thought that didn't anyone tell me to do this before because I was perfectly capable of defending myself. 
And it produced a period of time in which I was angry at God for, um, you know, this, this lack of knowledge, this lack of ability to, uh, you know, to, to protect myself. Um, and I, when I went to UCLA, I decided to study religion because I thought religion was the enemy. It was the enemy. And in my hubris, I decided I needed to know my enemy better to destroy it. So, really? so, so yeah, so freaking arrogant, silly. So you became like a, a god stalker. Yes, that's exactly what I did. I was gonna, uh, okay. like god stalker. So is that thing with? Um, it's important to recognize the religion. Is that God is not the religion. The religion is not the church. The church is not the believers. And so the, that those things get merged in together with a lot of people, and people see the hypocrisy of people. And then they go, there's no God. And that's, that's, that's totally illogical. And I, what I did is I started, so I basically went in there to kind of like destroy, um, religion and what I thought was superstition, all this bullshit. And as I really understand, began to understand religion and the text, and I've read every single freaking religious, major religious text in the world, and a lot of the minor ones, is that what it became clear to me was that for a lot of these people, not all, but for a lot of them, what happened to them was something that was truly special. And so special that they dedicated their entire freaking life to trying to be able to communicate with other people. And I, um, I wrote my, my thesis, you know, 250 pages and, and that, received a perfect score on it, on um, a psychological, anthropological interpretation of the, of the semiotics of religious experience. And see why, and like, as I mentioned, like, you know, I've, I've experienced God most of the times in my life, and um, I'm, I'm not a fool, and, and um those experiences are meaningful to me. In some ways, they, they happen kind of ha- in a happenstance fashion. In some ways, I really had very powerfully, and it created with great resources and energy, had to seek it out to me. And um, I, I just don't understand how someone who is as freaking brilliant as you are, who is as committed to truth and logic, can be an atheist. I can understand, I could respect that you being an agnostic, but there is no proof that God doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist, man. I mean, there, there's, there's room for doubt that God, that, that God doesn't exist, but there's no fucking proof whatsoever that God doesn't exist. And I, I mean, I'm here, I don't want to hurt you. I'm, I'm here because, you know, my spiritual life has actually, radically improved my aesthetic understanding of reality. And like, I'm not a perfect man. I'm, I have all kinds of freaking problems. I'm not, um, I'm not even a happy man, but I have these moments where I can think clearly and look at reality and just see how fucking fantastically beautiful it is. And I just would hope that maybe through this discussion, I might be able to a little bit inch you towards, you know, 
saying it's not going to hurt your logic, not going to hurt your um, desire for truth, not going to hurt, hurt your desire to be the best person you can be, not, not going to hurt your desire to be, you know, a beacon of truth for other people, but just maybe on a personal level, like help you like walk out and like see a sunset and appreciate it a little bit more. All right. No, I appreciate that. It's very, look, I, I get the benevolence behind what it is that you're saying. I, I appreciate the sentiment. Obviously, you feel that you have a great gift and a great insight that you feel I'm lacking and that you want to you want to share with me, right? To, to yeah, make me, I mean, like, to make you know, me a better person and more like a, a, to to get me closer to the truth, right? Right. But shouldn't, shouldn't, isn't that what we should do in general? Like generally speaking, if you're committed to the truth, you want to share that. And you want to you want to help other people basically empower themselves. To, like I don't want to tell you what to do. I don't want to like control your worldview. I just want yeah. to help you to basically gain more. Well, listen, more if I, uh, you know, like, if, if I if I'm ill with ignorance and you have a painless pill to fix my illness, you'd want me to take it, right? Totally. Yeah, I I fully I fully understand that. And so you and I are going to enter into a very, very exciting contest. Okay. Because only one of us can be right. Um, and and as, that's because hey. <laughs> you know something something is valid or it's not right. Uh, yes, that that and that is a you know that is a freaking very healthy way of approaching. And I me. I appreciate you know because listen, when I speak out against the uh, existence of of God, mm-hmm. um, you know every atheist on the planet, you know piles into me, and uh, says, uh, well you know the burden of proof is on the other person. So why are you asserting that there's no God? Because if I come across somebody in the woods and a log has landed on their leg, I will try and help them up. And it's not enough to just say, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. We have a difference of opinion. I'm an agnostic. I need proof. Otherwise, if I genuinely believe that something doesn't exist, I need to forcefully make my case. Because if I'm right and something doesn't exist and people are trapped in error, that's bad for them. And so I want to lift a log off someone's leg so that they can go to a hospital and get better. And so, and and you obviously feel the same way with regards to me, which I appreciate and I respect and and uh, um, also appreciate the sentiment that you're bringing to bear on the topic. So, I guess we can start. Okay. Let's have a definition of God. Okay. Well, um, as I said to Michael earlier, uh, are you familiar with the Neo-Confucian philosopher Chu Si? Who? The Neo-Confucian philosopher. Chu C H U dash H S I. I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, well, you know, as a person who's studied all these religions and also was, you know, Taoist monk, which is you know um, based in Eastern philosophy, um, Chu C has wrote a book called um, "Further Reflections um, on Things at Hand," and in which he describes the, the concept of Li L I. Which is um, can be vaguely described as principle, and in it he lays out, as far as I can find, like an irrefutable argument, in that there has to be a central organizational principle to reality for there to be an organized flow of linear causality. Like the, the fact that I'm speaking to you right now and I'm not instantly turning into a chicken. And then into like a rock and then into a ball of light 
and instead there is an organized flow of causation means that there has to be an organizing principle. And it is utterly open within philosophy to argue whether that principle is animate or not, whether or not it is conscious or not, whether or not it is self-aware or not, but to deny that there is an organizational principle that holds these disparate forces together and has them act in a cohesive manner is madness. There well, are- hang on, hang on. So what you're saying is that there are constant laws of matter, the, 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 the laws of the universe. And, the laws of the, and those matter. laws of matter are constant for a freaking reason, bro. No, 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 no. Hang on. Not There's no way. You know, what, There's what no justification for going from what is one to of, it was planned. One of the craziest things in the, in the world is from Raymond. is nothing but, I'm a very smart person, and I don't have the answer to this question, so I'm going to say it's random, because my ego exceeds my ability, my desire for truth. I'm sorry, you, you, I just, you garbled for a second there. You said something about random? Yeah, and you find like often in terms like physics and like Harvard, like Darwinism and bullshit like that, that, that when people can't explain something, they often, too often, it tells people, too often define it as random. But random forces define why they're utterly stable um, relationships between Fundamental forces in the universe. It doesn't make any freaking sense. It's, it's, I'm sorry, it's, I'm I'm lost. So uh, you and I both accept that there are um, constant properties and um, behavior. So we say it's tough to not anthropomorphize. You say laws, and it sounds like there's a lawgiver or whatever, right? Uh, but yeah. uh, atoms have constant properties. They have. They I, have. I, 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 I wouldn't say that. they. Have, I wouldn't say they have constant properties. I'd say that they have um, roughly similar properties. I per- perfectly, personally believe that the, like, if you look at Einstein, Einstein's wrong because he, he defined the speed of light as a constant. It's not a constant. It's, it, it fluctuates. Um, the greatest minds that defined our era of the 20th century, Darwin, um, Karl Marx and Einstein are all wrong to a certain degree. And they defined our... Yeah, our yeah sorry. First of all, that's 19th and 20th century Marx yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, Darwin were 19th century. Um, obviously, Einstein born in the 19th, but his discoveries were in the right. early 20th. Right. But, um, well, yeah, we know that they're wrong because of the scientific method, right? The scientific method which compares hypotheses to that which is measurable and reproducible. And if there's a gap, then the reality, the matter, the, the sense data... Uh, always wins over the idea, right? I mean, if I predict the ball's going to bounce and it doesn't, then my theory is is false because theories always bend to empirical data. So the scientific method is the constant by which we know that people are wrong. So the fact that we know people are wrong is not a refutation of science, but an affirmation of it. Yeah. I I mean, how do we know if a theologian is wrong? We don't, (laughs) because it's all made up. Right, well, so the idea that that knowing that a scientist is wrong is somehow a refutation of science or a limitation on science or a problem with science? No, that's well, the whole point. Is that there are ways of knowing whether a scientist is correct yeah. or incorrect, whereas uh, knowing whether a theologian is correct or incorrect is virtually impossible. Well, one of the things that about science is that science is is fantastic at recognizing that which is quantifiable in reality, which is awesome. It's awesome. Um, 
it's not great. It's recognizing that which is qualifiable in reality. I mean, okay, science, hang on. We're, we're jumping from topic to topic. Because okay. what was the first question I asked when we began this conversation? Um, Just after you, uh, you gave me your background. Yeah. Um, well, uh, please. Um, I'm sorry, but I've forgotten. The first question I asked was, John, what is your definition? Or give me a definition of God. I did. And now we've gone 10 or 15 minutes into it, and I don't have a damn thing. I attempted to give that with you using Chusey's definition of principle, which is a central organizational principle to reality. And and I asked for more clarification on that in, yeah. in saying, so what you're saying is that there are, there are constant laws of the universe, which is not to imply a lawgiver, it's just a colloquial term, right? So there are constant properties and behaviors of matter and energy in the universe, um, but that is not a, what you gave me was the basis of the scientific method, not a definition of God. Well, what I'm saying is that there is something that organizes those relationships. It's not the law. No, 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 no. There is no possible way to go from the existence of the laws of matter to they have been created and organized by some entity. Okay, proteins. Give me an answer to proteins. Wait, are we going from the laws of matter to life itself? Sure. I, mean, I, have, I have multiple. Um, here's the thing, now. Okay, are you? This is going to sound crazy. Please, please be patient with me. Okay, and um, if I'm if I seem like I'm going all over the place, I apologize. I'm not, I'm not trying to be, you know, a sophist and distract you with things. Um, I just want a definition of God. That's all. That's yeah, not exactly yeah. the same as the laws of physics. Okay, sure. Or the laws the, of matter. Right. The a not the law, not the fundamental forces of the universe, but that principle that organizes them in their relationships between each other in a certain way, on a very basic level. If you want to, if you want to argue that that is an animate, that it is not a consciousness, you know what? I am. I'm okay with that, man. I, I, I no, I don't know. I don't know what that means because the laws that exist. Laws of matter that exist, the properties of, of atoms and the the matter, uh, the, the ways in which matter and energy behave, uh, those are just constants. And the idea that there's an or, or something or someone that organized them doesn't follow. So is it sure. that you're saying that, that a deity is it, it, consciousness without matter? That there, there is a, to, to assume that there is a, um, a natural relationship between strong and weak nuclear force an electromagnetic force, uh, in that it just happens, is stating, is stating using the word random. It's random. It just no, happens. no, no, it's not random. The whole point of physical laws is they're not random. If they were random, then you would be turning into an elephant and a ball of fire and a, uh, a unicorn, and then we wouldn't have a conversation. I mean, the right. only reason that they're life has been random. able to evolve and that we're able to have this conversation is because the laws of matter uh, are constant and predictable and right. universal. And there's a reason for that. Why? Well, what, 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 I'm, you, uh, no, how would you know there's a reason for it? Because, because there's an organizational principle, just like there's an organizational principle in your consciousness that allows you to have a, a coherent conversation with you. Uh, it, pretty much every single thing that you've ever seen in your life, that you've ever done, has been created by consciousness, your consciousness. 
And so it wait, is, wait, 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 I don't understand what we're saying. Are you saying that I went to Africa, therefore Africa was created by my consciousness? Uh, no, I'm saying that your experience in Africa was created by your consciousness. No, my experience in Africa was created by my sense data, which received information from a place called Africa. Now, I may have had some subjective preferences or likes or dislikes or whatever, uh, and those would be part of my consciousness, but um, the experience of being in Africa in its totality was not created by my consciousness. That's a Cartesian argument that's like we're a brain in a tank, and I, of yeah, course, completely yeah, I, reject it. I don't believe that either. Um, okay, so the idea that um, my, my trip to Africa was somehow entirely created within my own mind uh, is well, not. It, well, not it, was, right. it was created certainly by your sense of free will. You chose to do things like look right and look left. You chose to walk forwards and walking backwards, which influenced the sensory data that, that came into your, into your being, which, um, again, influenced your consciousness, which influenced your further choices to go to sleep, to go up stairways, to do whatever you're going to do, which influenced your experience, which influenced your consciousness. Okay, I have no doubt that my choice has an influence on my experience. Otherwise, right. we would be to say that we have no free will. So, okay, but that doesn't mean that my consciousness um, creates my experience. It merely means that my choices have an influence on my experience. They do. And okay, so so far we're we're in complete agreement, and <laughs> the idea of a deity has nowhere entered the picture. The, the laws of universe are constant, and uh, a choice has a, an effect upon experience. Okay, what is, um, I'm curious, what is, what is your greatest doubt regarding the, the, um, the potentiality, because you believe that God does not exist? The potentiality. I know that God does not exist. It's not oh, a belief. Okay. Oh, okay. That's, that's great. Um, that, that, um, and, and, the, and the reason, very briefly, the reason for that, and you've probably heard these arguments before, but for those who haven't had the privilege of you know, hearing me talk about this before, or the curse, I don't know, whichever one you want to choose. But uh, to say that something exists means that it must be perceptible in some manner by the senses, either directly, like you walk into a door, oh, look, it's a door and not a door frame, or indirectly, uh, insofar as you may determine the effects of something. So you can't see a black hole, but you can see the effects of a black hole and its mass is gravity well, say, on a nearby star, that it's sucking that whirlpool of star matter into its uh, insatiable maw of gravityness. And so for something to exist, it must show up. Uh, well, first, it must be rationally consistent. Uh, and therefore um, uh, possible to to exist. So, you know, the old Bertrand Russell example of, is there uh, a teacup floating somewhere beyond the orbit of Mars? Well, there could be, because it's possible for a teacup to be floating beyond the orbit of Mars if space aliens drank tea uh, and uh, threw it out of their vessel or dumped it out, then it went into orbit beyond Mars. Uh, then you could conceivably say that a teacup is uh, somewhere beyond Mars, and that's not impossible. Uh, you know, we may doubt it, and there may be reasons to doubt it, but we certainly can't rule it out. But um, uh, if we said uh, that um, a, um, uh, a terrestrial frog was living in the in interplanetary um, vacuum between Mars and the asteroid belt, this would be impossible because, of course, you can't live. Uh, terrestrial frogs can't live in space. There's no oxygen. There's no water. There's right, very little. So that would be an impossible. We would know for sure that there's no frog that's been living for the last couple of hundred thousand years somewhere between Mars and the asteroid belt in orbit around the sun. That's just not possible. Or if we were to say that um, 
there's a unicorn somewhere in the universe, a unicorn being a horse with a horn on its head. Well, we could say, sure, we can't rule it out, and we, and we can never rule it out because, of course, the universe is billions of light years across, and we could scour, even if we could travel faster than light, which does seem to be something that is being tweaked about in physics these days, we would then start at one end of the universe, even if we could magically examine every planet. Well, by the time we got to the other end of the universe, it might have evolved on the first planet we went to. So we can never rule out something like uh, a, uh, a unicorn uh, as something that, that exists. However, we, we can say that there's no such thing as a square circle. Um, we don't have to look all over the universe for a self-contradictory entity to know whether it exists or not. And so when we say God exists, then what we're saying is that God shows up somewhere in the rational universe, therefore is subject to the laws of physics, because that's what being existing means, being part of the universe, which means being subjected to the laws of physics, and uh, therefore uh, is not a God. Because something which can be rationally known to tangibly exist and therefore be subject to all the known laws of the universe means it can't be consciousness without matter, because consciousness is an effect of matter. And um, so once we say God exists, we're saying that uh, it is a mere mundane object or person or thing that is part of the universe, that is subject to all the laws of the universe, and therefore is not God. And if we say um, that uh, uh, God somehow exists but is never part of the universe and is never detectable by any human methodology that is direct and measurable and reproducible and part of the scientific method, then we're saying that the exact opposite of existence is that which exists, which is a logical paradox, which can't possibly be true. In other words, if there's never any evidence of any direct, tangible way of perceiving or determining the existence of a deity, that's exactly how we know something doesn't exist. So if the definition of a deity is something which can't be perceived and is not subject to the laws of the universe and is not part of the universe, well, that's exactly what something that doesn't exist is defined as. Not part of the universe, can't be perceived in any way. There's no difference between God and a vacuum. And so um, if we say God exists, and when we parse out the actual statement, we say, uh, we find out that it means that that which is defined as not existing exists, then we have, you know, one of Aristotle's three laws of logic has been violated, and we don't have to look any further, but we simply know that uh, it is not a, a true statement. Um, Stefan, um, we're obviously having a debate here, and um, you're, you're obviously a brilliant man, and you're a person who I admire, and you're a person who is running the largest philosophy show on the planet, and I'm just some dude calling in. So I hope I'm, I'm asking to be a bit patient with you. Just, uh, just debate. Just okay. you don't have to give me the backstory or, or give me, uh, you know, the subtitles or tell me what I do and yeah. don't do. Just respond to my argument. See, my argument is that that's the freaking worst argument for my freaking life. Pure sophistry. The, um, Sorry, what I what I have said is the worst argument you've it's, ever it's heard in awful. your life. Do you think that might be a bit hyperbole? A bit be, of hyperbole. It might be a bit of hyperbole. This bad argument. The um, but don't tell me it's a bad argument. Just yeah, disprove it. I will. I, I'm in the process. But then don't give me all this crap ahead of time by telling me it's a really bad argument. It's pure sophistry, which is very insulting, by the way. Here's where we may part ways in terms of being nice to each other. Okay. Because you just accused me of sophistry and putting forward a really terrible argument. Mm -hmm. And because it's the biggest philosophy show in the world, I ought to know better. So, of course, you're basically kind of accusing me of dissembling and, and, and falsifying <laughs> and putting forward something I don't believe. 
So here, I mean, I get your aggression, but rather than telling me that I'm wrong, which is sort of a waste of time, you either prove that I'm wrong or you don't, but telling me that I'm wrong without, before you prove, is called poisoning the well. It's trying to get people to believe that I'm wrong before you actually take the trouble this, to make this, an argument. What, That's sophistry, my friend. This is why I asked you for some patience. Um, so one of the things... Well, how about, about you, hang on, hang on. How about you provide me some patience? rather than just telling me I'm a sophist putting forward the worst argument you've ever heard. Is that giving patience to me? Is that being patient with me? Um, well, I, I, I honestly don't think... I honestly think that you're being a little emotional right now. And I would like to... No, no, forget like, that. Forget like the emotionality. It doesn't matter if I'm emotional or not. Are you being patient with me? Because you're asking me to be patient with you, but of course we should not ask for virtues that we ourselves are not providing in a conversation. Are you being patient and considerate with me? I think so. By saying that it's pure sophistry and the worst argument you've ever heard, that's being patient and kind. You, you know what? You, you, you're, um, you're, you're, you're right. You know, because that is, that is um, I use hyperbole there. Um, it's rude. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit rude. I mean, I, I, um, you're right. Right. I, that is not the worst argument for her. I think it's an unfair argument, and I, and I do think it's soft. Unfair is no. Unfair is not a philosophical term. It's either a valid or an invalid it's argument. It's invalid. Okay. So go ahead. Invalidate it. Okay. Um. Um. Your argument can be viewed, and please, be, please let me. This is a little long-winded. So I, no, no, don't be long-winded, man. Okay. So Just, here's the, you've, you've, studied, you've studied thought, you've studied reason, you've yeah. studied argument. Yes. What you have to do is disprove my argument. Here's the thing. Your argument is essentially that um, infrared radiation doesn't exist because you can't sense it. You, of course you, you can sense it. I can, said directly or you, indirectly. You, you can sense radiation with a Geiger have, counter. Have you, okay, have you ever um, heard of remote viewing? Well, hang on. Do, do you concede that I covered radiation in my argument? Um, yes, I guess, I guess I did. You said indirectly, yes, correct. I did. I'm okay, sorry, so, I, I missed that point. No, because I just disproved something that you said, and then you moved on without any acknowledgement, which is okay, not you, fair. It was my fault. I missed that you said indirect, so I apologize for that. Remember I was talking about a black hole, that you can't see a black hole directly, right, yes, but you yes, see it. Did yes. you miss that whole part? Um, I saw that part, but like the black hole, it's it's a the black hole is essentially an information void. So, the, I'm sorry, black hole is what? Well, it's considered a void of information because there is nothing, no information that comes out of it. So, saying that it, it, it the fact that there is an information void is considered proof that a black hole exists. No, 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 no. The proof that a black hole exists is that you can see its effects on surrounding matter. As I pointed out, like it's pulling that star stuff into a big whirlpool around it. Mm -hmm. So you see its effects on that which is around it, and that's how right. you know it's there. Right. And and I, I've been, I have, I have personally, myself, I, I, I've had known dozens of people who have had visions of God that completely freaking change their lives. No, no, hang on, hang on. That's, I mean, not, like, that's not the argument. You, you're drifting. So first of all, you said that um, you, you missed the whole point where I was talking about indirect. 
right? Which means you either weren't listening or you didn't understand the argument. That's not a very good sign in terms of your first rebuttal. I'm just pointing this out, you know, as a guy who's a philosopher. So we can drop that, the argument that you had about radiation, and we can, I'll also be fine with the fact that you missed a whole segment of my argument. And then you called my argument the worst argument you'd ever heard and pure sophistry when you weren't even listening or didn't even understand some of it. And then you accuse me of hubris? I mean, yes, because... You dismissed my entire argument as being terrible and pure sophistry and you didn't even understand a significant part of my argument. It's a terrible argument saying that God is limited by the laws of physics. Where did you get that from? Hang on, hang on. Let's go back. No, let's go back. No, you're dodging again. John, 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 you're dodging again. You called my argument the worst argument you'd ever heard, and you didn't even understand a basic point that I reiterated several times. Which is, hey, I asked you, patient, it sounds like you're responding right now like your butt hurt. And I asked you for patients to have a long explanation of my perspective in contrast to your own, and you are jumping on my response. Now, I'm not you, jumping you, on your response. You, are you said that my argument was the me. worst argument you just, you'd ever heard, it is and you failed to understand a basic part of my argument. Of reality. I'm sorry, I'll let you talk, because if we both talk at the same time, we're not communicating. So go ahead. Thank you. So, so, Do you reject the experiences of great minds? Oh, no, no. I'm still staying on this topic, and then we can move on. Okay. So just to, from the perspective of somebody who's having a conversation with you, which I guess is not feedback you've had a lot of because you've probably got away with this quite a bit, you oh. said to me after I made an argument that it was the worst argument you'd ever heard, and it was pure sophistry. And, and then it turned out you didn't even... That. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me finish. Remember we said that if we both... Hang on. Remember we said if we both talk at the same time, yes, we're not communicating? Right. Okay, so, so can are, I finish are, my thought? Are we going to agree right now that we're not going, we're not going to interrupt each other? You interrupted me just now. Yeah, I, you've interrupted me approximately a dozen times now. Right now. So if we're going to agree that we're not going to interrupt each other... I will utterly agree to that. But like But you just interrupted me. Right. Because you have interrupted me multiple times. So I will continue to let you speak completely fully without interruption as long as we have equality in terms of agreement of our discourse. Fantastic. Okay, so if okay. I can continue my point without you interrupting, that would be great. Yes, sir. And I won't interrupt you either. Great. Okay. So the point of contention here is that you're accusing me of hubris, of arrogance. You stated, after I made my argument, that it was the worst argument you'd ever heard, and it was pure sophistry. And then it turned out that you didn't even understand one of the basic points that I made, which I made several times. Does that seem troubling to you? I, what, seems, what seems troubling to me is that I, um, you're correct. It was rude, and that it it was not the worst argument I've ever heard. I think it was a an invalid argument. Um, but you're you're right. I was um, I used a rhetoric in terms of our, our discourse um, because I thought your I guess your argument emotionally triggered me in a way that uh, I should have had better uh, emotional management of, and. Uh, for that, I apologize for, and I should apologize for, because 
it's a lie. It's not the worst, it's not the worst argument I've ever heard. Uh, I think it's a valid argument. Uh, I think you're missing out on certain key facts and understandings of things. Um, I think that the whole concept of being able to perceive things uh, um, is is missing things like, let's say, a very intuition and indirect senses are often things that need to be developed, such as in, in drinking wine. You have to kind of be taught and learn how to find certain earthy notes and, and fruity notes in wine. Because you won't, you won't know that initially. And those are qualities that need to be developed, just like case selection qualities need to be developed. And that you have not directly experienced these things is not a valid argument than so many other people have. And that's my primary point. And I have I'm sorry, I'm sorry to, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that wasn't my argument. You're not addressing my argument. My argument wasn't I have not experienced it, therefore it's not true. I I never said anything like that. So I'm not sure what you're responding to, but that's not how debates are supposed to work, right? I make a case, and you can make a counter case and find the flaws in my logic and all that. But you're responding to a straw man in, in that I never said there's no God because I've never personally experienced one. That I never made any kind of case like that. You're saying there's no evidence. I'm sorry, I don't... Uh, I, I already made the case. I, can't, I mean, do you not understand the case? I mean, I don't know about you. Like, when I'm in a debate somebody is making points, I'm sort of feverishly writing them down and, and trying to figure out whether they make sense and, and yeah, to I'm rebut not, them. I'm so. not feverishly writing them down. I, I, okay, I'm, even non-feverishly. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, uh, I'm um, listening to what you're saying and hearing you make points that just don't seem to be logically connected. And quite frankly... Okay, but then you've got to disprove that they're logically... Like, then make the case against my case. But me, you, what you're saying, that the... Some people have experienced but something saying, and I haven't. It's not yeah, the case. But you're saying that if God comes from the physical world, it's not God? How, how does it make sense? Are you saying that um, you could have accept a definition of God as something that would be part of the universe, that would be um, uh, physically detectable, either directly or, or indirectly, and would be subject to all the laws of the universe? Well, um, well one of the things about something... Uh, that people often uh, note with God is you know these these laws of omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipotence. Um, John, sorry, and, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I just want to point out, I don't think you're answering Steph's question that he just asked. I was I was going to mention that, but I didn't want to. Yeah, I, it, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think no, it's okay well, for the host to jump in sometimes to interrupt yeah, it's, it's going it's, off, but he has it's, a very specific question there. And I, yeah, it, no, what I, I I was. I'm kind of, forgive me, please forgive me. I'm kind of long-winded in my, and kind of oblique in the way that I respond to things. Um, and so like, one of the things that a, uh, and, you know, organized, creative principle that's conscious and self-aware is also has the power to limit its own power. And so, if that's the case, if you have something that exists outside of the material universe and enters into it, it has the power to kind of alter its nature temporarily or indefinitely. Just like you and I have the power and the free will 
to transition from R to K selection genes and so forth. And so it, the, 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 the concept that something that a, a very powerful organizational principle has the option of compromise, I don't think is unreasonable. And the same. So are you saying that God both is and is not subject to the laws of the universe? Yes. Okay. So if God both is and is not subject to the laws of the universe, then at some point we will be able to de detect God through his effects on matter and our, and our energy. Um, like if I say I something is, is both within and is inside and outside a room, right? Like someone standing on both sides, then I can detect the part of them that's inside the room and at least know that there's half a person <laughs> around, right? So if God is both inside and outside the universe, then we can detect that part of God that is inside the universe, and therefore um, he would then be proven to, or something would be proven to exist, right? But the part of God that was outside the universe would be outside any possible test of existence and therefore would be synonymous with non-existence. No, no, no. Like, um, here's a final thing to inform my perspective. Uh, have you ever remote viewing before? I'm sorry, have you ever what? Have you ever heard of remote viewing before? I have. You have? Okay, great. Seth, okay. are you familiar with remote viewing? I'm, I'm thinking of remote control of PCs, but... Remote, okay. remote viewing is essentially, about. well, I'll just say remote viewing is essentially there is something in a locked space that people don't know what's in, and you're able to ascertain what is in that space without any exposure to information or experience of that space. Yes. Pretty much. And, yeah, and what it is is this is a very interesting subject, Stephanie, that you might want to you know, look into. Um, it's because it's crazy. It's one of those crazy things that, you know, that you would not expect to be normal in part of, part of the world that is. Um, what happened in, was in the Cold War, um, the United States figured out that the Soviets had a psychic spying program, right? The Soviets had, had what? A psychic spying program. It's very easily documented. And so being the Cold War, you know, this competition thing, you know, the United States figured out, hey, we have to have a psychic spying program too. And so in the 70s, early 70s, what they did is they had two physicists, um, Hal Putoff and Russell Targ, um, take a bunch of psychics at Stanford Research Institute. And they basically tested these guys hardcore to find out, like, are these people actually able to perceive data without any kind of sensory input? And they would do, did all these kind of experiments. And they did so. And they objectively were able to figure out like, wow, some of these guys are, are not bullshit on this. They're actually able to perceive data without any fucking sensory input. And then what, what they did was they, uh, they started figuring out like, what's going on in these people's head when they're, when they're doing this? What's the psychological process? It just doesn't happen like that random. And, they put together these protocols based upon um, tension, you know, from, from certain things to other things. 
And then they started bringing in soldiers, um, often who had had kind of like weird things like near death experiences and stuff like that. And they taught them this protocol and they were able to do the same thing, acquire accurate data without any sensory input. Wait, wait, and how is this, how has this been, has this been proven in double blind experiments and so on? Yes, man. And, 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 I don't believe you. I okay. simply don't believe you. Okay. I right. simply don't believe right. you even remotely. Well, let okay. me, I have let a me, remote yeah. viewing that this is not true. Okay. But go ahead, right. Mike. Let, okay. let me just jump in here, too, because I think there's something relevant to this discussion. Um, John, I, this is something you're probably not aware of, but are you, are you familiar with Project Alpha at all? It was a, something yeah. involving the Washington University. I've never heard of it. It's, it's talked about pretty extensively in An Honest Liar, which is James Randi's documentary, which just came out, which I will wholeheartedly recommend to everyone as well. It's really interesting. Um, and James Randi runs the James Randi Educational Foundation. I, He's yeah, a magician. I'm, I'm just explaining to the audience as well, which may not be aware. Okay. So James Randi runs the James Randi Educational Foundation, and one of the aspects of the Educational Foundation these days is a million-dollar challenge where claims possibly paranormal or psychic remote viewing falls in this category he's done remote viewing stuff past um people are allowed to come in and try and prove their claims under controlled conditions for the opportunity to get a million dollars now before there's the million dollar challenge there was this project alpha project where james randy with some people involved at washington university set up some studies to try and test supposed psychic abilities and Randy put in some plants, which were mentalists, some people that are trained in um, magic and other disciplines where they can make people believe that they're psychic, make them believe that they have powers that they don't just by tricks, right, by simple by magic man, tricks and that type of thing. Manipulation, all yeah. that. Within, yeah, 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 within this project, there was quite a few scientists and these two mentalists completely few, confused and uh, had these scientists believing that they were a real thing, that they were genuine psychics. And it was only after an extended period of time that they came out and confessed and outed themselves and said that they were just essentially toying with the scientists the entire time for the purpose of proving that even under scientific conditions, you can't scientists. They're not he was showing the infallibility of testing this type of stuff for people that aren't familiar with the methods that are being used to subvert the typical scientific process because people aren't looking for various conditions and attributes that the right. mentalists are employing to skew the data that's being presented. So right. that's, that's something I would just throw out there for food for thought. And it's, yeah. it's described and gone over in great detail in an honest liar, which is Randy's documentary, this whole project alpha hoax. And uh, it's a big pro big part of Randy's early appeal and uh, led to the James Randy educational and everything that it does now. So I just want to point that out there. Okay, well, like, I also wanted to mention, I, I, too, I also, that uh, a, a fellow named Dean Radin in a book called The Conscious Universe says that the remote viewing program that was run by the government finally wound down in 1994. The CIA basically shut it down because they were convinced that after 24 years of experiments, it was clear that remote viewing was of no practical value to the intelligence community. The CIA report noted that in the case of remote viewing, there was a large amount of irrelevant, erroneous information that was provided, and there was little agreement observed among the reports of the remote viewers. Um, the CIA report, um, there were four independent, um, th there were six reported instances of failed replication. And uh, so uh, this idea, the government poured almost a quarter century uh, of trying to find value out of this and uh, found uh, no value. Now, 
<laughs> if a government program is shut down, boy, it's got to really fail because, man, lots of government programs continue going uh, even when they uh, don't fail. So um, I think that uh, it, is not, uh, it is not scientifically replicated, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Okay, well, um, um, and there's some value to that response. Like, first of all, like, um, you know, what Randy says is true. You know, people are easily fooled. That, that's absolutely true. And people are easily manipulated. That's one of the fucking tragedies of, of the world. Unfortunately, the world is filled, filled with con artists and um, people are so easily manipulated by their beliefs and stuff like that. The desire to do things. Um, and the thing with remote viewing is that my story is that um, I used to run a, a nationally distributed you know, musical culture magazine. And I found out about this program. And I went and um, while I was a singer at Dallas Master, and who trained with a guy, and I went and interviewed him for an article. And you know, he took a liking to me. And at the time that he was training like six people for a weekend for 50 grand apiece. You know, he trained me for a full 12 hours, you know, one on one. And I, I became quite good at this. And um, can we test it right now, Jen? Yeah, let's no, do it. Absolutely. No, no, I'm holding something it, in my hand. It, it uh, no, uh, it, I want you to tell me what it is. It doesn't work like that, man. It's, it, it, yeah, that's always what you hear. No, that it, is exactly it, the same well, story. Whenever you say to someone, uh, whenever somebody says, I have I'm, psychic I'm abilities, not, and the not. moment you decide to test them, you always hear the same response. It's like clockwork. It doesn't work that way. Dude, oh, dude, so dude. if you have a direct pipeline through to some omniscient deity, I'm thinking of a color, just ask that deity what it is. Oh, it doesn't work that way. Whenever you put forward a test to people's claims about their supposedly psychic abilities or their relationship with omniscience, you always hear the same response. And I've literally been hearing it for over 35 okay. years. Whenever I've challenged people about their psychic abilities, you always hear the same response. It doesn't work that way. Well, that's correct, except it just doesn't work. There's no that way or this way about it. Okay. Um, now, let me have please have a response without you interrupting me. Um, there is a technique. There's, there's a very organized and disciplined way that it's set about. It is a, an organized structure. Um, one of the things about it is it's not, it's not that bullshit. It's not like, guess what I have in my pocket? It, um, a, let me give you a great example. Uh, well, why isn't it that way? Please, please you just interrupt me for this way. Well, no, but you you made a statement. Am I not allowed to ask what for, for, for what that statement even means? Right. This is a conversation, John. We have to be able to ask okay. questions. Right, I'm not yeah. trying to interrupt you. Like okay. you, you make a statement. Uh, two and two make five. I can't sort of until I understand what you're it, saying. It, There's it, no point it, in continuing. It's, it's it's literally not like you know. I want cake. Here's cake. No, there's there's an order to things. And one of the things about about stuff is like I'll, I'll give you a great example. Um, I was. They use this military lingo and shit. And, and I was given a target. And this was a long time ago. And the, when you receive the target data, all you receive is a series of numbers. Facts that, that were facts to me. So there was nobody in the fucking house. Nobody around me. that I didn't speak to anyone. I just got some numbers facts to me. And then you go through this series of symbol production, of focusing your attention in certain ways. You start, you start producing impressions, and the impressions are entirely based upon first impressions, about not thinking, doing whatever, whatever your impressions before you analyze the data. And anytime you start to like actually think you know what it is, 
it's considered to be imagination. And so I'm doing this freaking, I've got eight numbers in front of me. I've got papers that you organize in a certain fashion. You move from simple to more complex data. And I'm writing down over, I'm drawing a fucking, fucking. Dude, I'm sorry. Look, I got to interrupt you here because it is my show. And I'm asking you for scientific proof. And you're saying I did some stuff once which okay. I can't possibly verify, which I have okay. no way of knowing if you're telling me the truth or not. I mean, this, you're just rambling. This has nothing to do with science or philosophy okay. so or truth ul- or anything. So ultimately what happened is I, I, I drew the Golden Gate Bridge, and then I called up and said, please... Hang on, hang on. Target. Did you hear me? Yes, but like the... So the, but you just continue as if I didn't talk? Well, you interrupted me. I mean, you no, I did interrupt you because you're speaking nonsense. This is a philosophy show, not your claims that can't be verified the, the, by anyone about subjective that experiences that you intu- think are true. People intuitively experience things. It's not Everything's not based upon the physical senses. Evolutionary biologists have determined that we have thought centers in our brain that are based upon their instincts, that are based on coalition identification. Because No, no, you have yeah. to prove things. You're claiming that you have an ability, you reject my demand that you, or my request that you prove it, and then you just give me some rambling story about something happened that I can't possibly verify. But you're not letting me finish the story, man. No, I don't want you to finish the story because it's not relevant to a discussion relevant, about philosophy, truth, reason, is, empiricism, or the reality. Rel- the relevant story is that people have throughout history, great minds, greater than yours and mine, like Newton, have experienced God. And that that is a meaningful experience for them. That there how, do is, you know, is, how do you know whether, hang on, how do you know whether Newton experienced God? Oh, come on, bro. Don't give me, don't give me that, that um, epistemological argument of like, how do you know that you're even here? You could be a brain in the vat. I didn't say that. I didn't say, uh, how do you know that you're here? I mean, here? like that, like that's that, an that, argument the whole, the whole argument, the whole what argument I'm asking of doubt is just is nonsense. When people got, you know, when people got thrown in jail for being atheists, saying, well, I know what they experienced because they professed a public belief in God. It's like saying, well, gosh, everyone under Stalin was a communist because they all said they were communists. It's like, nope, they just got thrown in jail or got thrown into the gulag. For, I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he did have a subjective experience of a deity. But I don't know for sure. I know what people, what he wrote down. Uh, I know what other people, and I know he went to church and so on, but well, that was the law. I mean, you well, had to do it. But you're playing upon doubt. Ultimately, we, we make leap faith about fucking everything. I mean, we, we don't, we're not omniscient. We know, I don't perfectly know that I'm actually speaking to you right now. I could call some, you know, ridiculous thing out of a brain of that, which, you know, is so unlikely that it's, it's not even worth paying attention to. When you have things like the likelihood of proteins producing themselves randomly happening, being greater than the number of atoms in the universe, that's not even worth looking at because it is so freaking unlikely. Could it be true? Yes, it could be true. But it's so incredibly unlikely. This is a word salad of assertions. Right? Because first we're talking about remote viewing and then you're talking to me about Newton uh, and you're using the, the argument from authority. Well, Newton's smarter than you and he believed in God, so of course you have to believe in God. You've got to know that that is a a fallacy, right? The no, argument from authority you, is one of the basic fallacies that you learn when you're about eight years old. Have you, and you're have, trying to pull that in a philosophical discussion as if I'm not going to be aware of that. Well, Newton was smart, and he believed in God, so you should believe in God. That is completely a false argument. You know that, right? 
It's I, called I, the I, argument from authority. Okay. I, 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 I have not been skilled in, in these kind of like terms of debate. I, I basically debate essentially. Um, but certain things like well, you should <laughs> you should learn how to debate because you should know when you're making a fallacious argument. It's not, fallacious. and you should learn how to rebut an argument that's been made. Because I made an argument that was pretty clear, I think, uh, at the beginning, and you've not really responded to any of it. And you're pulling out remote viewing, and then proteins, and and then Newton, and like all sorts of stuff, right? But none of that is any coherent response to the argument that I've put forward. And I understand you are not well-versed in how to have uh, a debate. It's not your forte. It's not, I guess it wasn't taught to you in, in the education that you went through. And, and I, I mean, I've been a, on the debating team since I was in high school. And I've studied all the debating techniques and all the fallacies. Well, I shouldn't say all. <laughs> There's so many, right? But um, I'm just, I'm very experienced at debating. And you wanted to have a debate with me. And, you know, if I say I want to play chess with someone and I say, well, I just move the pieces where I feel they should go. Well, I'm not playing chess. I'm just moving pieces around a chessboard randomly. But if you want to debate, then you have to learn how to play chess. You have to learn where the pieces are and how they move and what's allowed and what's not allowed. And this idea that you sort of debate instinctively, it's like me saying, well, I just play chess instinctively and the rooks can do whatever they want, and the mm. queen can do whatever. That, that's not chess. You're not, you're not playing the game the way the game has to be played if you want to have a debate and try to establish some truth. And the worst thing is <laughs> that you started off by telling me that I was a terrible debater, and I was a sophist, no, and this and that and the other. Like, you're basically going to somebody who's a grand chess master in chess, not knowing how to play the game, saying that the chess master is really bad. At, at playing chess. Well, of course I look bad because you just do whatever you want and don't know how to rebut an argument or form a coherent uh, sequence of thoughts or, or, or rebut a proposition. So, of course, I look bad to you because you don't have a clue what you're doing. This is called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is you don't know how good I am at something because you're terrible at it. Huh. And it's not an insult. I mean, the yeah, evidence okay. is there for right. anybody who wants to All listen right. to the conversation. All right. um, um, may, I, may I have a response? I, you, you will have a response. It won't be a response to what I've said, but you can certainly say what you want. All right. Well, um, you're, the, you're actually the first person that actually called me a terrible debater in my life. Um, that was said, here's, here's one of the things man, about this particular subject matter. And um, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I have, I have, again, again, I, I, I want to emphasize this. You know, we're on the same side. Like, I totally respect you and what you do. We just have a issue on this particular issue in which we, we differ. What you do in the world is fucking awesome. I mean, the, the information you, you present is amazing. I agree you are a tremendous debater. Um, one of the things that is different between you and I, and I'm sorry that you know you I have I have a certain pain in my life and it's a particular pain in my life, is that I was raised with a very stable family, with a wonderful father who was who was born in poverty and worked his way up to being the vice president of Walt Disney Corporation. And you didn't have that, which is, uh, I'm sorry, like you probably didn't ask it like I did, but you know, I have a dad. And one of the things about having a father that is, is useful in terms of being able to try those case selection genes in which you can 
further appreciate the value of God. You see, your physical father has that similar role in that he's not around all the time. He's out there in the world, invisible. You can't freaking see him. You don't know what he's doing, but he's out there gaining physical resources for the family to nourish you. And that, that role, that mentoring role provides a cognitive bridge to be able to appreciate the concept of a something that you can't see that is out there providing spiritual resources for your personal evolution. And I've had that mentoring. I've had that experience. And you, you have it. And so okay, I understand. Again, this. I understand why this is uh, hang a on, hang on. barrier for you. I'm, I'm confused because earlier you said that you, so you just said you had a great childhood, but didn't John earlier you say that you were angry at God because you had a bad childhood? I was, no, I had a great family. My family was great. My childhood was not great. My family was, was great. Your childhood was bad, but your family was great. Yes, yes, sir. Doesn't your family have some responsibility in having you have a good childhood? Um, I'm also an independent person. I didn't, I didn't necessarily uh, kind of an odd, odd fish. You know, they weren't really aware of um, the pain I was experiencing. I didn't communicate that. So wait, uh, so you had a good family, but you didn't tell them when you were in pain. Yeah, that's that's on me. That's on me. Wait, but isn't that not having a good family if you can't even tell them when you're suffering? I wasn't fearful of like you know of my communication. Then I just I just didn't feel like. I mean, it, it sounds crazy now. I, I get it, but like I just didn't feel like I felt like that was something that I just needed to deal with myself, as opposed to like looking to somebody else to like you know, mommy solved my problem. I I just didn't process things like that. Um, so, um, so John, do you remember this is, this, I was, it's a, it's a, it's a skill that I was able to bring to bear on our conversation, even without the miraculous power of remote viewing. Uh, do you remember I said that, uh, you were, um, um, you were going to have a response, but it wasn't going to be a response to my argument. Uh, and, and this is what happened, right? You, you gave me a response, which basically said, Steph, I'm right because you had a bad childhood. And I didn't. Oh, you didn't? Well, you didn't have a father, is it what I was trying to point to? Okay, sorry. So you're right because I didn't have a father. Well, I'm, That is I'm, really I'm, being terrible at debating. I'm, because whether I had a father or not well, has no relevance on the validity or invalidity of the argument that I was presenting. You don't have those experience that I mean, understanding of the subject matter. This is not a rebuttal of what it is that I'm saying. Two and two make four. Well, Steph, you don't understand that two and two make God because you didn't have a father. That's not even incomprehensible. That's like anti-comprehensible. One second. Um. And the fact that no one has told you that you're bad at this is really troubling to me because it means that you've not spent any time around anyone who knows anything about logical argumentation, rebuttal, 
rational constructions, propositions, or anything like that. that it means that you spend that, your life swimming around in the mental soup of people who don't have a clue what to do with their brains, and no one has ever pointed out that you're really terrible at this. Is that why, and I say this is that like why, positively, is, like is you that, could, a smart guy could become better. Is that literally why I graduated summa cum laude and you say, earn a perfect score on the ASVAB, which one in 50,000 people do, and twice earn a perfect score on my logic exam at Legere. I have no idea of any of that. I'm only telling you what I am experiencing and what I absolutely know for sure, that you are really terrible okay, at this. And look, I mean, if, if, you, um, if you listen back to it or, or, you know, with a critical mind, you write down the points that I make and whether you attempt to rebut them, I mean, you know, I started off by asking for a definition. We didn't get very far in that. You asked me for my proof against the existence of God. I gave you that proof. You didn't rebut. You're all over the map, and, and you don't actually deal with any of the points that I'm bringing up. Okay. Uh, okay. I should be writing notes because you are throwing a lot of information at me, and it's a, it's a, it's a very good debating technique. I, I admit. You're, like I said, you're, you're excellent. Hey, hang on. What do you mean technique? You mean like a trick? <laughs> well, um, I make you laugh like a clown? Is that what you're saying? Um. No. <laughs> no, like when I put forward a cohere, like, you know, like you said, you said, like, Steph, you run the the biggest philosophy show in the world, and you know that I'm a very good debater. It doesn't mean that I win because I'm a good debater. It just means that I'm a very good debater. And I've had a lot of experience in putting forward these arguments. And so if I'm up against somebody who's really good, I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to study their arguments. Like, of course, for those who don't know, we've gone over this very briefly. Um, I've got a free book called Against the Gods, question mark, which is available at freedomainradio.com slash free. So when I go into a debate with someone, this is just preparation, right? Because you're talking about hubris. And hubris, of course, is being overconfident in your own abilities, right? So if I'm going up against somebody who runs the biggest philosophy show in the world and I want to school them, on philosophy, then what I'm going to do, is, especially if they've written an 80-page book about exactly what we're talking about, what I would do is I would go through that book line by line, and I would find the logical problems in what this person had written. The book is free. I wouldn't even have to give them a penny <laughs> to buy their big tome of error, right? And I would be really prepared, and I would see... Um, uh, all of the errors, and I would say, well, on this page of the book, you said this, and then on this page of the book, you said this, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't follow. I'd be, re I'd be prepared. I'd be ready. Well, Stefan, I was really hoping that we could have a conversation between two friends who want to help each other, as opposed to me beating you. As opposed to you doing what? As opposed to me beating you in something. Like, I really did not want to go into this thing. As a matter of like no, but we have a disagreement. Yeah, we have a disagreement, but like, generally, generally speaking, man, like you know, um, you know nothing about me, and I unfortunately know more about you because I've watched certain videos for years, and um, I've really grown to enjoy you, and I've I've really grown to like you know, just like really appreciate what you do. Not only as a mind, but like, where do you come from, man? You, you're like, you're honestly trying to make the world a better place, and you're you're cutting through all the fucking bullshit, and it's freaking so awesome. 
It's so wonderful that you're doing that. I don't know what we're talking about. First of all, when I gave you my first argument... Things like if, if we look at our, our conversation that, you know, if you study neurolinguistic programming and like that, you know, communication isn't just about the words spoken. You're talking about the phrasing, the, um, the tonality and like that. And when I've challenged you, your turn of voice speed, speeds up. It becomes like aggressive. It becomes, it becomes it be, it, you, you, you are the one who began interrupting me early, which is a terrible thing to do in the discourse. And that communicates to me that you are communicating from a defensive emotional position. So, and I will, I will concede you several things. Like, I, I, you know, I'm sorry if I insulted you calling, calling this office. That was, you know, I, I, I gauged in hyperbole. You were right to call me out and all that. Absolutely. You know, um, I'm, you're right. I, mean, I have no excuse for that. Um, but I do not think that we have had an, an evil kit, even kill honest discussion with things. You have, you have mired your, your feet in this thing that you have no personal experience of. And that, that's just odd, man. Consider, consider how brilliant you are. Consider how committed truth you are. Everything like, um, if you were like a freaking radical agnostic, you know, that, I, I wouldn't even flinch at either of them. The fact that you know that something exists that you have no experience of is so odd to me. Okay, but well let me let me help make it because the word odd is not an argument, um, <laughs> unless I'm saying that something is even, right? So I I will help you to understand and and make it less odd for you, which again doesn't have anything to do with philosophy or truth value, but I can deodify it hopefully a little bit. So if you're saying that God is a subjective experience. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you, John, that there are lots of people in the world, maybe even the majority of people in the world, who have a subjective experience called, which they call God. Now, philosophy, though, does not respect the epistemological validity or the, the metaphysical reality of subjective experiences. Like, that's how we know if, if I had a dream about an elephant last night— I didn't actually see a real elephant. Something happened in my mind. And so the differentiation between internal processes and external reality is, well, founded in metaphysics, but epistemology is the study of knowledge, how we acquire valid knowledge, must differentiate between internal experiences and external reality. There are people who have psychotic visions. There are people who have brain tumors who see things that can't possibly exist. There are crazy people who believe that they're reincarnation of Jesus Christ or, or they're Napoleon. or like There are lots of people who have very vivid subjective experiences. Uh, for instance, there is um, some explanation as to why people believe that they've been abducted by space aliens, mm-hmm. that the chemical that your body releases when you sleep, that when you dream of running, your legs don't actually move and wake you up. It, it deadens you. It, 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 uh, it's like a, a narcotic for your muscles. It deadens your muscles. Mm-hmm. And so people who claim that they've been abducted by space aliens will often say, you know, like I, I woke up and I couldn't move and there were these shadowy people around me and so on. And they have, yeah, and they have found that uh, there are people who wake up before the sleep paralysis leaves their body and they experience exactly that. I woke up, I couldn't move, there were shadow. They even, pro- it, that, that same thing produces visions of shadowy people around you. Now, 
that doesn't mean that nobody could get abducted by space aliens. Physically, it's possible. They can't get abducted by square circles, but they can get abducted by space aliens because there's nothing about space aliens or abductions or spaceships that fundamentally violates the laws of physics or violates the law of non-contradiction or identity or anything like that. So when you say to me, Steph, lots of people have had this subjective experience, I don't disagree with you. And I honestly believe that they honestly believe that they've had this subjective experience. What they cannot do is they cannot say, my subjective experience translates into objective reality. That they cannot do. The human brain is hardwired to experience things in dreams and in visions and under the influence of drugs and so on that are incredibly vivid and very believable to the people who are experiencing them. Freud, and I'm bringing Freud into a philosophical discussion, is not... (laughs) Not kosher in many ways, but Freud believed that this feeling of oneness that the Buddhists pursue, this sense of nirvana, had to do with an oceanic feeling of oneness that we had with our mothers in our mother's arms and so on. That's not science, but that's just one metaphorical way that that someone had of describing how people seem to have a similar kind of situation. There are ways of inducing religious visions in the minds of people by stimulating a particular area of the brain with electricity. And they see angels, and they see devils, and they experience God. There is a form of temporal lobe epilepsy that fully replicates religious visions. And this temporal lobe epilepsy is not rare, not that rare in the population. So there are numerous and, and, and powerful and vivid and entirely believable subjective experiences that people have that in no way, shape, or form can then jump from inside the mind to empirical and objective within reality. The ep- empirical and objective within reality is a totally separate process. A subjective experience in no way proves an objective existence. So when you say, well, lots of people have had these experiences, I fully accept that. What's interesting is that they tend to have the experiences that are culturally appropriate to their history. You don't see a lot of Muslims suddenly getting visions of Jesus, and you don't see a lot of Christians suddenly getting visions of, you know, eight-armed, scimitar-wheeling, elephant-headed gods from from India and so on. It tends to be kind of relative to their own cultural histories and environments and so on. And that's the one point. The other point is that you said I've never pursued it. Of course, I was raised religious. I was raised uh, as a Christian, and I believed when I was a kid. Uh, so this idea that I've never pursued it is is false as well. But But that's what I wanted to point out with regards to subjective experience. When you say that God exists as a subjective experience within people's minds, I fully and completely accept and agree with you. But there is no way to validly take a subjective experience and replicate it as an objective reality without empirical testing and rational consistency. That's how we know our dreams are our dreams and not our waking life. Well, um, Stephen, I think that I will not accuse you of soft shoe that argument. That was great. Um, I will um, so the only one point in that that but maybe that will take take challenge to um, is that you talked about and you're, and you're right it, it, they tend to be I'm like frick I studied this man they um, they tend to be culturally specific and th- that's the weird thing about this this thing which is essentially you're dealing entirely with the with your know, left brain which is I'm a I'm a left brain person I I, I think it should be dominant but there is a value to this kind of right brain 
processing, which tends to move into things that aren't as linearly defined logically. Um, you're absolutely right. Like and Michael was talking about that with Randy. It's, it's, it's really muddy. The whole element of spirituality is very muddy waters because lion truth is not as easily defined as it is through scientific method. Um, and, and very similar things that can look very similar can be madness or they can be genius. And, um, we talked about how, how in the Middle East, like, you know, nobody's seen Jesus Christ. Actually, if you do some research, there's a weird phenomenon that's going on is that People around the world are, are having visions of Jesus Christ. They're not having visions of Buddha or Krishna or something. It's only this one figure, and that's that, that's an outlier in terms of data. Um, I don't think I want to be able to convince you. Um, I guess that maybe wasn't my purpose here. Um, I want to ask your forgiveness to a certain degree, in that you made some you made some valid points that I didn't do my best job on, which you know. I should have, you know, I, I, I always want to bring my, my best job to things. Um, I just would hope that you would consider that with truth, we tend to look, want things, especially as freaking men, we, we want things clear cut. You know, this, this clear cut, like it's either, you know, it's either a wave or a particle, but sometimes it depends upon how you look at it. It could be a wave or a particle, like the Heisenberg and principle. With this kind of like spiritual thing and with things like intuition and, and with remote viewing, which I hope you will do some research on and maybe be a little bit more open mind with it's, it's, it's not the same thing as like gravity. It's, 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 it's murkier and it requires a, a whole lot of attention to kind of, you know, separate the wheat from the chapel with these things. And I, 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 I just, I just would hope that in this conversation, you would just be open to a slightly more open mind on the subject matter. And, and that's all I'm asking of you. You know, and if you say no, hey, it's okay. I, you know, I just am presenting my experience, my knowledge, and you know, maybe that could be my work. Oh, listen, I'm I'm always open to new arguments and evidence. I'm just not open to mere assertions, right? I mean, I, I put out for reason. I just don't put out at frat parties. Yeah. Um, can I ask you a Can I ask you a couple of questions just as we finish up? Oh, sure, thank you. I, I, it's a, it's I, as I said, you know, like I used to work in the film in um, television industry and in the music industry, right, in Los Angeles, and uh, I've met a whole lot of celebrities in my life. I mean. Just, Countless celebrities in the world. And, um, when I found out that I was going to be speaking with you, you have no idea how, like, nervous and excited I was. And it was very short notice. I thought I was going to I have more time to prepare for it. John, myself. sorry to cut you off, man, but were you even listening to what Steph said? Yeah, I just, just he asked I was, if I, you could ask you a question, and then yeah, you went yeah, on a monologue. Yeah, my monologue is just like, dude, you're awesome. Please ask me any questions you have. Okay. Oh. Uh, how tall are you? I am um, a little short of five, five nine. Five foot nine. And what do you weigh? Um, right now I weigh one eighty-five. And are you fairly um, athletic? Um, yeah, fairly athletic. I, 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 I um, I'm 
getting back into shape, I, I was an athlete in high school, a three-sport athlete, a martial artist most of my life. Okay. And uh, have you ever done any modeling? Um, uh, yes, I've done a little bit of modeling, but that was not, not professional. Oh, I understand. I understand. Um, you're a very good-looking guy, I assume. Um, I, I really don't think so. I'm okay with that. I'm better than average looking. But... Mike, you've got a picture here. We've got a picture on Skype. We'll keep it private, of course, right? But what do you think? I'd I, say you fall on the handsome scale, John. Thank you, Mike. I would say... I was acquainted you know, in that fashion. I, I'd, you know, give you a second look. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, I, I got to tell you, man. I, I mean, nice, nice head of thick blonde hair. Blue eyes, is that right? Long face, and you know what they say about guys with long faces. <laughs> a lot of shaving. Anyway, um, but uh, been to Los Angeles, not driven out on the ugly on the ugly cart, as a lot of people who go to Los Angeles are. And so I'm going to tell you straight up, eight and a half to nine and a half out of ten. Well, that's very kind of you, sir. I'm not sure it is. Um, <laughs> let me keep going. <laughs> and you, you're you in your twenties? Uh, oh no, sir. I'm not sure. And how recent is this photo? About a year and a half old. About what? A year and a half old. And you're in your 30s? I'm in my 40s. I'm 45 years old. You look incredibly young for your age, John, I will say. Thank you, sir. Incredibly young for your age. Thank you. And are you um, married? No, I'm single, sir. You're single. And how, how often do you date? Um, I've joined the sex list, sir. I don't date when did you last have a relationship? I last had a relationship in um, December of last year. Okay, so it's relatively recent. And did you have many much trouble getting uh, dates in the past? Uh, not in California, but I do. So, I mean, you certainly, like, you're a very fine-looking man for any age, but, uh, you know, 45s, uh, you're 45, uh, or I guess this was when you were 43 and a half. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, you look uh, you look fantastic, right? I mean, one of the best looking guys in that age range that I've seen, uh, you know, just judging by the picture and all that. And again, I know it's not any kind of professional shot or whatever, and it's webcammy, blurry stuff. But nonetheless, you look fantastic. I will tell you something about pretty people. In my experience, this does not have any relevance to our discussion whatsoever, and this is no proof or disproof of anything. Uh, this is just something that I'm sure you're somewhat aware of, but because the listeners may not be aware of this, and it may not be relevant to you, but it is important. In my experience, the prettier the person is, the prettier the person is, the less people want to criticize them. You have no idea the not I do have some idea because no, you said nobody has ever said that you're a bad debater. So I have some idea no, of the amount of criticism that you've had in your life. Probably, I mean. I'm just, I mean, I, I'm just I've, going with, with also, my experience, but sealed within this conversation. I've also found in my life that people, <laughs> not to not to be a bitch about things, but I've also found in my life that people who evolve tend to respond negatively to my benefit. I didn't actually see your picture until just a few minutes ago, so okay. no. Yeah, I guess yeah, bold people probably feel. That, you know, I mean, you got a fine head of shoulder length blonde hair in your 40s. Yeah, they probably feel some, I don't know, bugs them or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I'm just pointing out that... Um, You're a looking guy, man. I mean, like, 
See, I mean, seriously, you know what? I love my looks. I, yeah. I am very happy with my looks, and you couldn't pay me to have that head of hair because I go in front of a camera too often. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm with Patrick Stewart versus Catherine Janeway in the Star Trek series. The woman who played Catherine Janeway was like, Patrick Stewart has it so easy because I have to spend an hour to get my hair to look like this every single day of shooting. And I'm like, I'm low maintenance. I'm like up and go. And uh, so I feel like I get to live an extra five years by being bald. And I'm, yeah, I'm very happy. And I think the added testosterone is not the end of the world for what I do. So neither here nor there. But because you, you have a reality distortion field around you just by being very physically attractive. And I would say the same thing. You've heard me ask this of women, women who have outlandish ideas, uh, at least ideas that aren't necessarily as strictly empirical and logical as, as some people might like. And a lot of times people are just looking into your dreamy blue eyes and nodding because you're very attractive. And this does, again, I'm not saying this has anything to do with the quality or non-quality of your arguments, but it is something to be uh, aware of I that mean, uh, mean, everything that is a blessing, as you know, is, is also a curse. curse yeah. with, great, yeah. with great knowledge comes great sorrow, right. and with great wisdom comes great pain sometimes. Everything that is a blessing is also a curse. And uh, good looks are a blessing, right. but among certain people, it is, it is not necessarily... Uh, it doesn't necessarily give you the most objective view of things. Right. Anyway, that's and, all and, I want. Yeah, and then everything you know, everything in life has the potential to be a trap. It's, it's just how it is. Like you know, um, a, a strength can be a weakness. All all that happens. You know, people people overcompensate. What they're not good at, they don't do very well, and um, they do more of it. It's, but, um, um, well, listen, I really, uh, sorry, did you want to add something else? No, man. I just like, I, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I, um, I just want to again express, um, I, I, I just want to reassert that, you know, I love what you do and, um, that we were not able to, you know, see common ground and things will not change the fact that I love what you do. And, um, I, apologize if I didn't do my best for us to see more common ground on things. Well, I had no problem with that. I mean, um, there may be no common ground in this particular area, and that's perfectly fine. I also wanted to say how much I enjoyed the conversation. It's nice uh, and enjoyable and invigorating to have someone come on who really disagrees with me or, you know, at least has an alternative perspective, and it keeps me sharp and it keeps me focused, and I I really appreciate uh, the call, John. It was a, a great pleasure to have the conversation. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being so gracious. Um, I just uh, will make the, the one request that some of these points that I, I mentioned, that if you wouldn't mind putting a small amount of your resources into looking into that, maybe that might alter your perspective a bit in a way that helps you grow. Send me, send me, send me some links. Uh, send me your best and most scientific links, and I will certainly uh, have a, a look into them. And I you know, never want to be avoidant of new information, and I certainly don't want to have any kind of confirmation bias uh, distort my receptivity to new data. So I will certainly have a look at uh, the best stuff that you can find to send me, and uh, I appreciate you making the offer. I will be happy to do so. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks, everyone, so much. Uh, a wonderful uh, evening of, of philosophical back and forth, uh, and um, uh, always a real pleasure to be able to uh, speak with you, the fine listeners. Freedomainradio.com slash, oh, is he going to say free? No, he's not. He's going to say donate. No, he's going to say free. Freedomainradio.com slash free if you want to pick up uh, my books. Uh, I think that they are 
obviously worth picking up. Join the 100,000 or so other people who are downloading and perusing and consuming the books um, every month. Month, yes, that's right. In Canada, a best-selling book is 5,000 copies. Fine, if you give things away for free, you can move a lot more product. <laughs> so you can go to freedomainradio.com slash free to get the books. Of course, if you like them or you like this conversation, you want it to continue to expand, freedomainradio.com slash donate um, to help out the show. And thanks again, Mike, for lining up a great series of callers. Thank you to the callers. Thank you to the supporters. And thanks be to Jesus. Have a great evening. We'll talk to you soon.